Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This is part two of my interview with Chris Bolton. Now, since I last spoke to Chris, it is all changed in his professional life as he has a brand new job. He's now the Director of Education at UpLearn, a project that has the tagline, Learning with Certainty, powered by AI and neuroscience. Flipping heck. And indeed, Chris is currently looking for teachers and tutors to work with him on this exciting venture. And you can find more details in his blog post that I will link to in the show notes. Now, Chris's first appearance on the podcast caused a bit of a Twitter sensation as he spoke at great length about how he planned a sequence of lessons on simultaneous equations. Indeed, how do you plan a lesson was pretty much the only question I asked. Chris then followed this up with a wonderful series of blog posts that I highly recommend checking out that I will again link to in the show notes and they dig into detail about this planning process with lots of examples to show you. Now, the danger with having a guest on twice is that the sequel never quite lives up to the original. However, I am delighted to report that this is very much a case of Terminator 2 and not Titanic 2. So, in a wide-ranging discussion, we covered the following things and much more besides. Chris responds to two questions from part one about his planning process. How can we make planning as simple as possible? And an absolute classic from Dr. Becky Allen, who asks, if Engelman is so great, why haven't his methods taken off? Then we turn our attention to less teacher-guided forms of instruction, and Chris addresses Andrew Blair's question from last episode about exactly what Chris means by an outcome. Then I ask, are less guided forms of instruction more motivating? Do they have any advantages at all over more explicit instructional approaches? Then we tackle performance, learning and understanding. What does it mean to actually understand something in mathematics? And how can we as teachers judge that understanding? When should we teach the how before the why? And indeed, should we ever teach the why before the how? I then pit Sweller's cognitive load theory against Bjork's desirable difficulties by asking, should thinking be easy or hard? And finally, we turn to the issue of memory, and I ask if the approach to teaching Chris advocates runs the risk of not giving students enough time to forget and hence benefit from Bjork's new theory of disuse. And scattered throughout all of this are Chris's philosophical tangents about values, purpose, outcome, expertise, scientific thinking, and a load more besides. I tell you what, it is an absolute treat. I was feeling cognitively knackered afterwards and had to join my wife in watching an episode of Geordie Shaw just to recover. And Chris has promised to return to the show to discuss such matters as schemes of work, variation theory, questioning, problem solving, and teacher training. Some of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcasts are five hours long. I reckon Chris and I can top that with some hardcore maths. 
Speaking of podcasts, a quick shout out to three new education ones that I've enjoyed listening to recently. First up, there's The Learning Scientist. That's one of my favourite blogs for practical applications of education research. Now have their own show and it is excellent. There's a link to that in the show notes. Then we've got Michaela Community School, hosted by Thomas Kendall and featuring interviews with Michaela staff, including Joe Kirby on Knowledge Organisers. It's a wonderful show and my only advice to Tom is perhaps keep that troublemaker Danny Quinn off the airwaves. We all know what happened after she appeared on this show. And finally, there is Tez, whose new Podagogy series not only features a good pun for a title, but also an impressive lineup of guests, including Daisy, Krista Dulu, and Dylan William. I do feel a bit like Daisy and Dylan have cheated on me by appearing on another podcast, but I'll let them off. As I say, they are all wonderful and they're all linked to in the show notes. But whilst these podcasts are great for my ears and great for my brain, they are doing my iTunes rankings no favours whatsoever. So any help you can offer in terms of a review or spreading the word to your colleagues is highly appreciated. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Chris Bolton. Strap yourselves in for this one and get ready for a couple of hours of wonderfully deep thinking. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Chris. Well, first things first, welcome back and thank you for returning to the show. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be back. And I'd love to pick up where we left off. So uh, last time you talked in great, fascinating detail about your planning process for, for simultaneous equations. And it, it was unbelievable stuff. And we've had quite a few questions in from Twitter um, about this. And I, I want to pick out two in particular. So the first one is from uh, Naini Singh, who says, how can we keep the planning simple? What's your response to that, Chris? Okay. Um, so I think that question probably isn't as straightforward as it sounds. Uh, first of all, what do we mean by simple? Uh, planning isn't simple. There's no way it can be if you want to guarantee success. And that's because what we're teaching often isn't simple. It's, it's a complex web of interconnected ideas. A better way of phrasing the question might have been, if um, being a little bit presumptuous, it might have been to ask, how can we ensure it doesn't take too much time? Yes. Or how can we reduce the time it takes? And I think that should be a function of training, um, either continued professional development or particularly initial teacher training, but instead probably has to be a function of experience. Um, I think we treat planning like some kind of generic skill that you can practice independently and get better at, but it isn't. Planning is mostly knowing exactly what to teach and how to teach it. Um, and then often what we refer to as planning is just this tiny little bit, little extra bit around how to structure those 60 minute, that 60 minute time slot that's available to us to, uh, to do that what and how. But it certainly doesn't make up the bulk of it. So I think there are two, two ways in my view that planning can become faster. The first, as you gain experience, because you're constantly improving your knowledge of what to teach. And when I say what, I don't just mean the, the high-level stuff. I mean that sort of gritty minutiae as well in the detail. Um, because you're improving your knowledge of what to teach and how to teach it. The, um, so the simultaneous equation sequence that I described last time probably sounded like a huge amount of work. But it, it really wasn't that much. It was one hour, one hour sit-down to map out the what to teach in terms of the that final objective and the sequence of 13 topics that I mentioned and what order we we're going to put them in. And that was me and 
and one of the teacher, Lydia Povey, were mapping that out together. And then for the individual lessons, I planned most of those on an index card on the tube on the way into work in the morning, <laughs> which, which kind of explains the second way that I think planning can become faster. Because I already knew what I needed to teach and that had been mapped out, my planning on the tube consisted of um, the how, but the how was mostly taken care of. So if I use the, the adding equations as, a, as an example, because that's one that I wrote up, I'd already determined that I was going to treat this as a transformation concept. And that decision tells me what I have to do next. All I have to do now is determine the instructional sequence. Um, so that's exactly which equations am I going to, am I going to present as part of the explanation and then which ones am I going to present as part of my, um, my sequence of questioning. And this is something that I've spent enough time practicing that I can do it reasonably well, pretty quickly. It's not perfect, but it's it's good enough to almost guarantee success. And it, this is the kind of thing you, you hear when you're reading about teachers planning in East Asian countries, incidentally. They're not discussing how to keep kids entertained or engaged for an hour. They're discussing whether to use the number 36 or 39 in this particular example, like which will lead to greater mathematical development. So I think once once you've already got a picture in your own head of those two things, exactly what is it that um, what is it that needs to know, and how should we teach it? Planning is reasonably straightforward, but learning the what and how does take a long time. And at the moment, I think we're hamstrung because this is a blind spot in our initial teacher education. And can I just ask on that, Chris? Because um you've talked there about how experience is the key to this and i wonder like that that sequence of lessons that you described on simultaneous equations is that something that you could have put together in your first year of teaching and if not how how do we how do we practice getting better at planning uh, is there a fast track to it or is it do we just have to put in the hard yards and get the experience and get the knowledge that enables us to plan in that effective manner well i think we do need to to get the knowledge, but the question is how? So could I have done that in my first year? Absolutely not, but why not? Because I wasn't, I, I wasn't told anything about what to teach. So when I come to um, our scheme of work and it says you have to teach simultaneous equations, I, I've just got a million questions. What do I need to teach about simultaneous equations? Um, I don't even know what's a difficult question and what's an easy question or what might come up on the GCSE exam what, what the acceptable standard is. I've been told nothing. I'm just flying completely blind. Um, so I had to develop this. So when I say developing through experience, this is, I, I had to develop it through experience because it wasn't developed during training. Um, so I would have tried some things out and realized that some things were um, too difficult or didn't work or weren't successful. So you try something different. Um, you scour the internet for hours on end trying to find examples of things that might be useful or scour out like, sort of searching through um, back copies of exam papers as well. But these are all things that we could have done during the training process, during the education, that initial education process. So I think it yes, it takes time, but it's but it could be done much more efficiently and it could be done at a much more opportune moment in our teacher development system rather than when we're already full time teachers. And if we've got if we've got teachers listening to this who are looking to to improve the planning process, and let's say that they're out of teacher training, they're a few years into their teaching career, um, practically, Chris, what 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 can they do? I mean, is is an initial first step 
as you described last time, to, to stop thinking about the lesson as the unit in time and start thinking about the, the sequence of lessons. Is that the first kind of practical thing that they can do to improve their planning? And what, what else would you advise teachers to do? Yeah, definitely. And I think when it, when it comes to that, that kind of um, that, ex, that point about experience and how we can develop through experience, I'm reminded of, I don't know if it was Dylan William who said this or somebody else, but this beautiful line that some teachers have 20 years of experience and some have one year's experience 20 times over. <laughs> so it does, it does very much depend upon how you're, how you're using that time. Um, so I think, uh, again, if it's simultaneous equations, step one, what can you do? Well, I think going through the kind of process I described, which doesn't take that long, really, it's very useful. So rather than what am I going to teach tomorrow or what should I be teaching in each lesson, just think, what is the end output? How much time have I got? And by the end of that time, what's the minimum point I'm happy for them to get to? And then taking some time just to sit in a chair and think how, how much, how, into how much detail can I break that down? And then now the experience thing kicks in because depending upon what you've thought about or read about or who you've spoken to in the past, you're going to end up coming up with different things there. But then trying it out this one year and going through that process and thinking constantly about what's working and what isn't, you will almost inevitably realize you've missed something. And then next year around or the next time you get a teacher, you can build that thing in. So one of the things I realized when, um, when writing this up, I don't think we'd accounted for the question, are these equations simultaneous, yes or no? So, for example, I think you could have two equations, um, one equation in X and Y and the other equation in A and B. And those wouldn't necessarily be simultaneous equations. So there you're looking for the, the idea that they have the same set of unknowns in each of them so that you can now go on to solve them. But we didn't do that, but we could have done. Um, and that's, uh, that's like an extra piece that I would add in next time around. And that, that's the experience bit. And just again, just just related to that, Chris, because uh, I know when I first started teaching, I was absolutely flipping useless when it came to lesson planning. And my lesson planning involved looking on tears, trying to find some fancy, exciting resource and then shoehorning it into any lesson that I could, regardless of whether it was suitable for the kids or not. I was very much my plan was very much resource driven. And I, with with quite a few of the, the teachers that I work with now, it's, it's a similar kind of thing because it's quite logical. There's, there's hundreds of resources out there let's find one that's rated five stars on tes and let's use this for our lesson and inevitably things things fall apart um, in the lesson when that happens so if you were um, a member of a department and you've got some um, less experienced teachers there um, how would you help support them with with their planning is it is it a case of just talking through the sequence of lessons is it a case of deciding what this final point is how how can teachers ex more experienced teachers help support less experienced teachers to get better at planning i think it depends upon where they are in their own exactly how inexperienced they are so are they brand new to the classroom or are they a couple of years in so that, that will make a difference because that that dictates the kind of questions you can ask for example i think if you take somebody who's just entered the classroom and has no experience especially if it's a direct to school program where they they haven't already done a, um, a year in uh, sort of a couple of different training placements and you ask them right what do you think should be the the end result for this uh, sequence of work 
why are you asking that question? How can you possibly expect somebody to know the answer to that if they've never read anything about it and if they've never been told anything about it before? It's just an absolute shot in the dark. Um, and, and I think we the sort of curse of knowledge, ex, um, expertise-induced blindness thing. We tend to forget this because in our heads now, we've got this, um, this, this mental schema, this picture of all these different things and how they connect together and roughly what the... The, the sort of standard question formats look like and what the slightly less standard ones that we should probably include look like. And so in our mind, we're, we're thinking, it, the picture's so clear, we expect it to be equally clear to, to somebody else who doesn't have that experience. But when I try to think back to when I just started, I remember with things like solving equations or expanding brackets, I had no idea should there be how many terms should there be, how many how high can the powers go, how many powers, what order should this go in? It was just completely blind. So asking the question, where do you think we should end? Oh, um, it feels almost punitive. You're asking a question which they can't possibly know the answer to. Um, whereas if they've been doing this for a couple of years. Um, or maybe you've gone through that process with them a couple of years, you could ask them and maybe they've got a different point of view by this point for some reason, and that reason is worth exploring. But now we're in a, a, we're at a very different point of development. Um, so I think right at the, the, the less experience, so if we take one extreme, at one extreme where there's no experience, I would probably dictate everything and explain the reasons why, and if we had time allowing, having a conversation around that as well and seeing how that resonated with the person I was interacting with. If I'm working with somebody who has some experience and some, some thoughts or views or opinions of their own for whatever reason, then maybe it's more more of a dialogue. And just my, my last one on that before I come to um, a, a wonderful question that's been asked on planning is when I um, when I interviewed uh, both Danny Quinn and, and Greg Ashman, um, they're both heads of department in their respective schools, and they very much have a centrally centrally planned um, way of approaching maths lessons. Where Danny and a colleague will not not so much script out lessons, but it'll be very much um, they'll have decided in advance what examples and what questions the kids will do. And a similar thing with with uh, in Greg's school even so far as to um not dictate is the wrong word but but to to advise which 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 way of explaining different concepts teachers should use and um, is that something you'd advocate kind of send all math teachers teaching lessons in the same way within a department 100 yes and for, for lots of different reasons um because you said one thing at the end there which changes the rationale for it so if we're looking at it from a teacher development perspective as a as an early career teacher, by God, I would have I was crying out for something <laughs> brilliant that would have saved me so many sleepless nights. It would have saved me eighteen hour days. It would have saved me working all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Um, it would have been brilliant. But not only that, but if I've got this very high quality pre prepared resource, as you read through that, you are learning, you are developing, you are learning something about why that's being put together the way it's been put together. Um, the closest I came to this was the MEP program in my second year of teaching. And while that is far from perfect, I learned so much from just having the structured resource to which I could refer. Um, so from that perspective, from a developmental perspective, absolutely. This, this idea that development is fabricating everything from scratch on your own all the time. I don't really understand how that has become the status quo. And but but then you you said something just at the end there um, something about 
being it being the same throughout the department. And I think that's valuable for a different reason. Um, we have a tendency to hone in on our own little world, ourselves and our classroom and our children and what we want the world to look like. But it's very important to zoom out and try to consider a, a wider picture. So from the, the viewpoint of the school, because you could zoom out further outside the school as well, but from within the school, you've got, let's say within a, a given year group, you're going to have anything from 60 to 200 pupils. And if they're not all being told the same things by different teachers in different classrooms, then as they communicate between one another, or if and when they move from one class to another or from one teacher to another, even if that's just up and down year groups, and those teachers are using different methods and different language, that's deeply confusing. That's not a good way of, of educating a, a group of children. Um, it's a distinction that Edie Hirsch draws between having a communal curriculum and an individualistic one. And I think our propensity has moved towards individualism. But there, there's an extraordinarily, extraordinary power in having a communal curriculum where everybody is learning the same things and has a shared language and therefore is able to communicate with one another effectively, even if they're developing different points of view or different approaches themselves as they progress through that curriculum. Got it. Fantastic, Chris. And um, well, the, the last question I want to ask on planning, and it's we, we get a lot of tweets in for questions for guests, and this, this has to be one of my favourites. It's from Dr. Becky Allen, and it's, it's quite confrontational in its nature, but in, in a friendly way, I think. And it says, uh, why does Chris think Engelman's ideas haven't taken off if they're so good? Any failings on his part, or is it boring to teach and learn? What's your take on that, Chris? I think... <laughs> I think it's an absolutely brilliant question, and it, it, it's, it's a huge question as well, or at least it's a, it's a question with a huge answer, and um, God, even trying to keep this as, as short as I can, <laughs> it's not going to be short, but, and, I'll, and, and even here I'm going to miss pieces of the puzzle out, but um, I mean, I think, okay, so first of all, historically, Engelman's originally working in the 50s and 60s, Project Follow Through ended, the first time it ended, because it kept going. In 1977, he published Theory of Instruction in 1982, and we now live in 2017. So there are two distinct timeframes to look at here. One is, why did it not take off at the time? And then, upon rediscovering it more recently, why is it not sweeping the world, or yes. at least in England? Um, so it didn't take off at the time, for the same reason that Sweller's cognitive load theory gained zero traction when he started working on it in the 80s really bad timing. At this point, the education establishment was in the full throes of an ideology that started with Rousseau and Spencer, through to Dewey and Piaget, etc. This was a, a naturalistic view of education. So children learn many things so easily and with joy outside of the school. Therefore, something must be wrong with the school and we must re-engineer schools so that the way children learn here mirrors how they learn naturally outside of the school. Now we have David Geary's language of biologically primary and secondary learning, so we can talk about why that logic doesn't follow, but at the time it meant an obsession with discovery rather than teacher instruction, and learning in a social setting, because social settings are fun, we actively seek them out, and it can be shown that we do learn some things from socialising. So when Engelman comes out with the direct instruction program or sweller with cognitive load theory, 
both of which advocate for teacher-led instruction at a time when people are dedicated to experimenting with naturalistic, child-centered methods of discovery learning, inquiry, problem-based learning, and group work, um, where a teacher should stand aside and let learning take place naturally. And pupils um, should be allowed to follow their own interests rather than having content determined on their behalf. Engelman and Sweller just didn't have a chance. (laughs) So when Engelman writes about this, he says that schools running his DI program were described at the time as joyless pressure cookers. Um, In response to this, he created a 30-minute video back in 1966. And you can actually find this on YouTube. And I wholeheartedly recommend anyone to look it up. Look up Engelman, direct instruction on YouTube. You'll see a black and white video, which is about 30 minutes long. And it it is fascinating. It doesn't show direct instruction lesson. It kind of shows the outcome. So he says right at the beginning, um, these kids are not learning right now. They're showing off. They're they're, they're displaying what they've learned already. Um, But what it shows is extraordinary. And for us as well, it's particularly good because this is a math lesson. And it shows a bunch of, and I hesitate to say this because I really wish I could just leave people to guess the age, but you can get close enough by watching it. It's a bunch of four-year-olds four-year-olds responding with excitement to questions ranging from at the beginning add together two single-digit numbers and that moves all the way through solving reasonably complex geometric problems like here's a square um, area is this what is the length of the side i think is one of the questions Um, all the way through to solving simultaneous equations at the end as well (laughs) Um, but despite this, I think people didn't want to believe or support it. They will find excuses to dismiss it um, on ideological grounds for reasons I'll, I'll come back to, actually, because they remain relevant to this day. So if we look back at the if we come back to the, the second part of this timeline, OK, we're slowly beginning to rediscover Engelman's work. Um, why is it not swept through the classrooms? First, I think that it might and I hope that it will. Only a few months back, Dylan Williams stated publicly that Sweller's cognitive cognitive load theory was the single most important theory for teachers to know. And that's huge, considering how long he was largely ignored by the mainstream academic community. Um, The same might, and I hope will, happen for Engelman. Um, But Sweller had hugely successful writers like Dan Willingham pointing us in their general direction. And uh, that hasn't really happened for Engelman yet. And we do probably need books to be written about it before it'll take off. Um, Sweller's work also espoused a series of principles uh, on a theoretical framework rather than actual full instructional programs that you could quite literally buy into. Um, And it's also called cognitive load theory, which has nothing in it which offends the sensibilities of modern teachers. (laughs) So this leads to a second problem that I see for Engelman's work, which is as it does have a huge PR problem. So it's called direct instruction. And we teachers are somehow conditioned by society to react convulsively to those words. (laughs) And this happens even before we get into initial teacher training, which does tend to reinforce the message in a lot of universities. So there's something deeply cultural at work here, um, which is what I was starting to refer refer to earlier on. Um, John Hardy in Visible Learning notes the surprise and even anger that he sees in teachers when he explains to them that direct instruction um, in his version, little d, little i, so not necessarily, Engel's, um, not necessarily Engelman's program, but that direct instruction is actually a very effective model of teaching. People are surprised to learn that. They think it's just a priori bad. And the second is that Engelman's programs are fully, so the things you can buy from, from the, the things that you could buy from him, they're fully scripted, 
fully scripted, not a little bit scripted. Start to finish, every single word that the teacher should utter in a DI program is laid out in advance. Now, on the one hand, Engelman only ever created programs for up to around, I think it's about year six in real money. Um, so his programs never tackle the increasingly complex and non-fundamental ideas that you'd see in later years. He also historically focused on reading and mathematics, um, though I have recently seen them extend to science and the social studies. And I say this just because maybe the programs, uh, talking about limitations, like maybe they would have to be adapted for older ages or different subjects, uh, maybe not. Uh, I mean, the, a lot of these things like the math programs, and he says this at the beginning of the video, these aren't, um, it's not that children are sat in these fully, it's not that um, children are sat in these fully scripted lessons um, all day, every day. It's, it's like 20 minutes a day. It's a bit like a phonics program. You get 20 or 30 minutes a day, and that's it. So there's plenty of time for other things like discussion and, um, and dialogue and so forth. Um, but even so, you just you just hear scripted. You hear scripted, and, and teachers hate this idea. Really, really hate it. Now, Engelman, I don't know, he might still advocate it for certain things, even as kids get older, because he does have very, very specific, well-considered reasons for having everything be scripted, and it's for the benefit of the children. But I think teachers do see this as being de-skilling, somehow reducing their role. And so I do understand why people reacted to this. I don't know how I would feel if everything was being scripted for me. But the things that do make me um, hesitate that, like, first of all, actors do have to learn precise lines and they still seem to manage to have a lot of fun doing their job. Um, Engelman describes teacher training. When he's talking about teacher training, he points out that there are still, even with scripts, they still see a disparity between some teachers delivering the program doing much better than others. So there's clearly still something worth learning there, even when things are scripted. The other thing that makes me hesitate is, um, although I've never delivered any of his programs, I know teachers who have. And I think the best way of describing their, their sentiments about it is that they find it humbling, deeply humbling, because... They realize, so first maybe they don't like the idea of the scripts, but eventually they realize quite quickly that they could never have thought through all the things that he has thought through and tested and trialed. And and so again, going back to that question you had earlier about the, um, the novice teacher in the department, people usually see working with his programs as a huge development opportunity for themselves once they get into it, because they realize how much they're learning from following his program. Um, so, so there's a PR issue there, um, but even then, like regardless, I'm not personally advocating that we all pick up fully scripted programs. So you can, and, and my, my point there about the scripts is that because the scripted programs exist, people overlook the parts of Engelman's work that are closer to Sweller's. The fact that there's a, there is a theoretical framework sitting underneath it all from which a series of principles about how to teach can be derived. And that's what I'm personally interested in. It's what I focus on. It's the aspect of his work from which I think we can all learn a huge amount. But there do remain two final barriers. Um, first, I mentioned that it hasn't been popularized in, popularized in writing yet. It's necessary, but I think this is much harder than what was done for Sweller's work because in the detail, Engelman's analysis is so much more complex. And this means that going through and internalizing his ideas so that you can then simplify them for a mainstream audience, is a huge amount of work. Um, and the, the second, I've, I've touched on a couple of times this idea that we have a cultural problem. 
And I think that this remains probably our biggest barrier. So in the 60s, it was seen as, in the 60s already, it was seen as archaic for children to have curricula determined for them and dictated to them by a teacher. And that attitude hasn't really changed. Um, I'd say it worse. In the interceding decades, we've seen a real crisis of adult authority more broadly in society. And so for that reason at the moment, um, I, I see only like a small vanguard currently prepared to try out this stuff. But it's a pretty dedicated group and it's growing because I think once people see the results, um, they do become hooked. So despite the resistance from, from education academics, from ideologues, um, from teachers promoting a teachers promoting a naturalistic and romantic view of education. I am optimistic and hopeful that Engelman's work will be more widely known to teachers in the future. Um, my feeling is that it will endure for an important reason, which is that while it was built on a relatively simple theoretical framework itself, um, and from there everything was constructed through a, an empirical process of trial and improvement, similar to Michelle Thomas's language courses, and yet in spite of that simple framework, uh, what's come out of it at the end is a series of recommendations that are entirely in line. And this is the part that really blew me away when I started thinking through. They're completely in line with the principles that you get from Sweller's cognitive load theory, from Bjork's new theory of disuse, and even in line with ideas like variation theory. It, it's the most comprehensive framework of how to teach that I've come across. And when empirical evidence fits together with theory so neatly like that, there's something very powerful at and can I can I ask Chris on that because I I don't know Engelman's work in great deal, detail at all. But what one advantage I see of Sweller's cognitive load theory is that, in a sense, you can and this is the wrong phrase, but you, you can you can can kind of dip into it. You can you can take little bits of it and apply it to your teaching relatively quickly. So something like the redundancy effect or split attention um, or goal free problems. You could you could somebody could tell you about them today, and you could be teaching tomorrow, and you could you could bring those principles straight into your class room are there are there any kind of easy quick wins from engelman's work that that can be applied as quickly or is it a very much all or nothing thing if you're gonna if you're gonna go with engelman you've got to completely change the way you teach and you've got to fully commit no it, absolutely there are equally quick wins there it's it's more that getting to a point where you've got somebody who can articulate what those quick wins are that's about that i think that takes quite a bit of work but uh I mean, I think I was in my second year of teaching. Yeah, second year. Um, I remember te it's one of the, the examples I keep coming back to because I had this this bottom set year seven class. And it, it, it's one of those groups that constantly keeps changing. So I think throughout the year I taught year seven set six. Um, but year seven set six was composed of different, completely different <laughs> children about four times throughout the year. Um, but they were always very weak. They could barely multiply numbers together. And I, I can remember I'm sort of picturing one one girl in my mind who, um, yeah, the, with the exception of, I think, twos, fives, and tens could barely multiply numbers and was extraordinarily poorly behaved. Um, like, really, really quite horrible in terms of people. <laughs> and, yeah, in this one lesson I did on expanding uh, single brackets, um, I, I don't even remember where I'd read it from. It was either from the Magnus Opus itself, Theory of Instruction, or maybe I picked it up from somewhere online, but... I just tried, uh, rather than going through the, let's draw the lines and explain what I'm doing and introduce redundancy as I ask you to read the stuff that I'm talking over at the same time. Um, I said something on the board like five brackets, two X plus 10 um, is equal to 10 X plus 50, I think that is. 
and did two or three of those and very and every one of them was I didn't explain what I was doing I just showed them how to get from left to right well I showed them that if this is what you've got on the left this is what you need to get on the right and uh, left it to them to figure out what was happening and yeah perhaps just silence and attention and every one of them successfully deduce oh that's what's happening and then were quite happy to try it out themselves and, and see that they were being successful afterwards including including this girl who could barely multiply numbers but obviously I've selected numbers that um, she she automatically knows what what they are when they're multiplied as well so yeah I mean that's the thing that I picked up and executed very quickly and that's what I've been doing really I've been um, doing bits and pieces of this throughout the year so it is completely possible and I have written about some of these things in my blog so the um, that one with the, the brackets I think I ref- to well, the, the the process is very the process for teaching that is identical to the one I wrote up for teaching adding equations, um, and I've got a blog post somewhere. I think it's called um, "When is a process not a process?" Oh yes, it refers to this as well, but then takes it kind of to the next level, which is when you can um, create multi-step processes by chaining together uh, concept transformation concepts like this. Are you not tempted, Chris, to get to, to write a book on kind of practical ways to, to use Engelman in the classroom? I can see this being a, a big seller. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm working on one book at the moment. So I say working on because it turns out that I'm really bad at sit, being disciplined and sitting down and finding time to write. But um, but yeah, I am working on it. And what I find challenging is I really I think I want to come at it from um, a subject generic perspective to begin yes. with. Because there's, there are just some wider things that are worth exploring, which are applicable to all subjects. Um, but then there is a part of me as well that really wants to dive into looking at this for, for mathematics, because it's you can just go into really so much detail with the examples, which I think really help to flesh out how this works. So I would love to do a couple of books. Um, one, looking at it uh, from a big picture perspective and how it all fits together. And then the second, really diving in for mathematics and showing how that can be used. Oh, fantastic. Well, that sounds fantastic. And uh, last question, just from me on, on planning, um, and, and Engelman in particular. Um, I've never seen one of his actual scripted lessons, but one thing I, I wonder, Chris, is is there room for any kind of formative assessment there? Is there room for um, r- responding to the different possible scenarios? Because I always imagine that that must be a difficulty with, with scripted lessons, that how do, you, how do you kind of inform or guide the teacher into responding to the different things that could happen and the different misunderstandings that could be revealed and, and so on. So does formative assessment play any kind of role for Engelman? It, it does, but it has it, it, a little bit like, um, like and, and again, this is part of what I, I kind of love about Engelman's work is that any, any kind of theoretical, any useful or good theoretical idea you could come up with, that's in um, the sort of modern vernacular. It's already there. It's already baked into um, the way he works, but he uses much. He uses very different language, and I really like this one because this is the one time when his language is much more simple than um, the language most of us would use every day. He's got an entire chapter in the book entitled "Correcting Mistakes," <laughs> um, and it's because it's towards the back end of the book. Um, it's not one that I've spent more time reading. It's the one that I've spent as much time diving into and thinking about how to articulate. Yet, um, maybe I'll go away and read through it so I can answer your question more thoroughly next time. But um, it, it's certainly in there, and it, it, but, but it's, a very, it's a very continuous process. So rather than we're going to have a hinge question at this point in the lesson, every single question that is being asked, and I think in um, some of the 
the DI programs that deal with like, fundamental ideas of maths and reading, you, you're looking at about is it 12 or 20 questions being asked per minute. It's very, very, Jeez. it's a huge number. I think it's about 12, 20 sounds almost too many. But it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's huge numbers of questions. You're just going through um, sequences of questions, and that's, um, which, which is another one of the, the, the misconceptions, the problems with the PR thing here. Um, people think direct instruction must necessarily mean a teacher talking which uh, and explaining ideas verbally, which it can do, it's, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So huge numbers of questions, and every single question is an opportunity for some sort of corrective feedback. Um, and I think it's kind of predicted in advance what kind of uh, what kind of mis- mistakes and misconceptions might arise, and then how to how to correct for them. Fantastic. Well, let, let's pencil that in for part three or part seven or whatever of this interview. Because I, I want to cool. dig into misconceptions and cognitive conflicts, and, and I'm obsessed with that kind of stuff. So that'll be great. And um, but this brings us nicely on, Chris, to the, the second thing I want to talk to you about. Because we've we've kind of got Engelman direct instruction, and at the complete kind of opposite end of the the spectrum, we've got the partially or minimally guided approaches to instruction. Now, I had Andrew Blair on um, uh, last episode, and um, talking about um, inquiry learning. And um, you had a question for Andrew and you asked Andrew um, if inquiry or an inquiry direct instruction mix led to poorer outcomes in terms of problem solving and investigative ability by the end of GCSE compared with a purely explicit instructional model, would Andrew still stick with inquiry or abandon it for pure explicit instruction? And Andrew was very definite. He said no, he wouldn't. And he kind of countered this by by wondering what you meant by poorer outcomes and and the phrase outcome in general, because I think for Andrew, and I don't want to put words into his mouth here, but it's it's about a lot more. That he talked very very passionately about empowering his students to have skills above and beyond simply being able to answer maths questions. About how they ask for ask uh, for knowledge, realize their limitations, um, are able to be creative, imaginative, and, and so on. So, well, in, in, yeah, just to, just to go straight into Andrew's question, what, what do you mean, Chris, when you talk about outcomes? Sure. I mean, I, I thought that I defined it as well as I could for in 140 characters. And this is why I said in terms of problem solving and investigative ability, because I think under those two umbrellas, you can start to fit all of the different things that you just described. Um, I mean, I certainly didn't say anything about GCSE grades as being the outcome, but I'd be happy to expand what uh, like what I've said there to include any as far as anyone likes. So you can include whatever you want, whatever you think is a positive outcome. Um, call it inquiry ability, mathematical understanding, um, knowing when to ask for, for, for new knowledge, etc. Or even I would go so far as to allow happy, joyful lovers of mathematics as the outcome. Um, the, so, so how the outcomes in this respect are, are defined almost doesn't matter. You can just keep lumping in as many positive outcomes as you want. It's because the question this is a question that I've asked myself in the past, and it's designed to tease out my own biases. And so now I use it to tease out the biases of others. So the point is, um, you know, do we do what we do because we believe it's what leads to success and good things for the children that we teach? Or do we do it because something else is at work beneath the surface? Uh, something because we, we do it because we, as the teacher in the room, like doing it that way. Um, and we wouldn't actually change, even if the alternative were better for the children, because it's not better for us. 
Um, so if I if I give a slightly simpler example of what I mean, uh, one that was it might be a little bit close to your heart as well, Craig, and then I'll I'll come back to that main point. Um, in trainee teachers, I always see a real discomfort with silence, and it's this. <laughs> It's a discomfort that I recognize because I, I feel it too and I, I've had to and I still have to work really hard to try to overcome it and push past it. Um, and I think after Danny's podcast, one of your key takeaways was the need to stop talking over pupils when they're yes. silently getting on with work um, because of the split attention effect. Yes. And this is one of the first bits of advice I have to give to new teachers. And actually, the way that I describe it to others um, when I'm working with teacher educators, so when they're responsible for t- training teachers, what I say to them is that you have to give people a license for the classroom to be silent. So in other words, um, you need to make people feel that a silent classroom is not a form of oppression. <laughs> because that's how we kind of feel. Um, and we're nervous about having especially when we're, we're new to teaching, when we don't have successful results. and we're, we're nervous about somebody walking into this kind of deathly silent classroom where children look like they're not having fun. So we kind of need somebody else to come in and tell us, no, no, that's okay, that's fine. And, and even you said that it took you 12 years of teaching, plus Danny's testimony yes. alongside the theory that you'd read in research papers to finally reach that conclusion. It's not a natural part of our culture anymore. And so it's uncomfortable. Um, so, so we allow and even create periods of an, an uninterrupted silence because that gives our pupils time to think deeply, knowing that they are safe from distraction. But it still does feel uncomfortable for us to do that. Um, I mean, that might not be true of everybody. Maybe some people are really comfortable with that. But I think for a lot of us, it does feel uncomfortable. It's certainly how it was for me. Um, and so I think in a similar way, um, for some people, like, telling pupils what it is that they need to learn, being the authority in the room um, and the font of all knowledge, this just runs smack into, smack against their sensibilities and their values. And so I kind of understand this too because it's very much how how I feel or certainly how I felt for a long time when I started teaching. And again, it's something that I see in trainee teachers all the time, um, right up to farce that is trainee MFL teachers asking pupils to guess what a foreign word means. <laughs> Usually off the ba- on no basis at all other than maybe they've connected it to a silly picture they found from the internet. So it's, it's, it's not even like you're deriving the meaning of this word based on the meaning of two words that it's made out of. It, it, it's just, I, I want you to guess what this word means based on the picture. And then, obviously, the pupils fail, and then you watch this teacher physically, physically deflate as they inevitably have to give up, tell the class what it means, and they look as though, as though in telling the children something, they've failed as teachers. So, so the point I'm trying to get to with that question is it's about uncovering the implicit values that are guiding us and trying to figure out whether or not they might be misguiding us, whether we, they, we would allow them to misguide us. Um, because we can always justify what we do by saying we think it will lead to the best outcomes. And then we can argue over whether or not we value different outcomes. So I think by creating a hypothetical in which every single positive outcome you can imagine is just loaded into the... Um, in, in, into the end result and is achieved by a kind of teaching that you are not currently in favor of, 
we get to test whether or not we are truly ideologues or whether we are truly doing what we think is is best for children. Um, and, and for my part, I used to teach actually a, a lot according to discovery and inquiry methods of, of, of a sort. Um, and I thought that explicit instruction was a sin. And I, I recall a lesson right at the start of my second half term, so about October, October autumn term, um, my first year, and I was teaching my year 11 class. I asked them, what would your perfect lesson be like? And I remember it so clearly because one response I got was a cry of, food, there'll be lots of food, <laughs> one of the girls. Um, and then in the very last lesson of term, I actually brought in a load of food to the lesson and say, see, I'm listening. Um, but forgive me, I was in my first first year. Um, but, but I said to them, like, my ideal lesson would be one where I turned up half an hour late, but when I get here, everyone in the class knew what they needed to learn next, could easily pick up whatever resource was available to them to continue learning, they could support one another. And you know what? You guys could do just as well um, as if – you could do just as well without without me as you could if I were there. And I think, actually, if I think through that scenario, I mean, that is still my fantasy, but it, it, but it is a fantasy – <laughs> and, he, and even if there's a teacher out there listening who's ready to tweet in that that's exactly what their class is like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it's possible to pull that off somewhere in the country with one particular group of children in one particular set of circumstances. It's, it's the kind of thing that Dylan Williams says, um, something will work everywhere. Craig here. Sorry for the interruption. But when Chris listened back to this recording, he realized he'd made a little slip up. What Chris meant to say was, everything will work somewhere. Therefore, some teacher saying, well, I have a class of kids who are fully independent, is not wholly unexpected, and certainly doesn't lend any suggestion that it is replicable anywhere else in any other context. Hope that clears that up. Anyway, back to the interview. Um, so, okay, that, that, that's great. But, but en masse, across an entire country, 3,000 secondary schools, 20,000 primary schools, half a million teachers and 5 million children, it, it's very much a fantasy to think that that's going to work everywhere. And so I've changed my approach to something that I'm convinced can achieve the best outcomes for everybody, um, no matter the circumstances, actually. This is what's important to me. I think this is actually, uh, I think this is context neutral. Um, so even if it means I have to get comfortable being an authority figure, I was happy to, to change the way that I thought about teaching. So I suppose the point of the question is that if, if roles were reversed and I was asked whether I would change my approach if it led to better outcomes, uh, my response would be a resounding yes. And actually when somebody responds no to the question, I, I take that as a sign that they're governed more by what makes them feel comfortable in the classroom than necessarily what is really going to be best for, for the children. Um, and even though I dismissed GCSE results earlier, um, there was one thing I, I should probably know, because I do think it's important in terms of um, public debate and rhetoric, that there's, there's just something deeply pernicious about advocating for sort of other outcomes in lieu of GCSE results. Um, you know, despite all the... Um, all the bad things that an unrelenting focus on GCSE results has led to, and it has been absolutely appalling. Um, it's just too easy to try and get away with saying, sure, my kids don't get results, but they learn lots of other things that are actually more important than that. Um, my view would be shoot for both. I mean, you can get an A star in GCSE and an A and, and in A-level maths and have terrible mathematical understanding. 
And I know that because I've been there. I've been that child. Um, but I don't really see how you achieve great mathematical understanding, problem solving, investigative, inquiry ability, all of those things um, without also being able to get an A in a GCSE maths exam. That just seems very unlikely. It seems a bit suspicious. And it's a bit too easy to, to sort of hide away weak pedagogy behind that as, a, as an excuse. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that that's what Andrew would say, so by the way. I can't actually remember what he, what he said in the interview. But I just think it's, uh, I've, I've definitely heard people try to, to hide behind that before. And I think that's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about um, the, the issues that we have around a focus on GCSE and exam results in general is they certainly not the be all and end all. An over-focus on the exams as the, um, the curriculum of what we teach is, is destructive. But if you, the way I say it is if you get teaching right and you do teaching really well, um, and you are developing all these other wonderful things that we want as well, that an A or an A star in an exam should be an absolute piece of cake. It, it should be very straightforward. And it should just come naturally as a consequence of really great teaching. Um, there was one of the there was one of the thing that Andrew did mention though, which is about, about values, which I think is is very important. It's a very interesting question. It's a very very interesting question because this is the one that people often overlook, and it's um, it's about what does the child learn from their experience of school that has nothing to do with subject content. Um, and the best way of articulating what I mean by that is by by imagining a, a utopian and a dystopian classroom. You've got one classroom where a person's view of it is a um, child walks in and they're immediately, they walk in in silence, they're immediately told exactly where they have to sit, they're told how to sit, they're told where to look for the duration of the lesson, they're told that the, the adult in front of them is the authority to be obeyed without question throughout the lesson. And... Um, and this is their experience, five, six, seven lessons a day for however many years, um, five years or 11 years of school. Um, how is that child developed as a person by the end of it? And definitely some people are really concerned when they, when they think of that sort of nightmare vision in their mind. They think that what, you, what you're going to end up with is um, somebody who's learned uh, complete obedience to authority. Um, not, not only just I can only learn if somebody spoon feeds me and tells me how to learn, but I, I must completely obey without question authority figures. And that this would be disempowering because um, and it, it would lead to a, sort of a, a, a situation where people who are, who are sort of politically powerful and in positions of authority will simply be obeyed without question by the citizenry generated by the by this schooling system. Um, and so then the alternative is you create a, a kind of a democratic classroom environment where the teacher isn't necessarily the absolute authority, where we agree on rules and um, and, and just it's, and we sort of learn through conversation and dialogue with one another, rather than having it sort of downloaded to our minds through a, from a, some kind of a single font of knowledge, as it were. That's that's a topic that I, I think this speaks to this kind of this values and this, this values issue and this discomfort that some people feel. Um, I, it's a very interesting one. Does does that first scenario necessarily lead to that nightmare outcome? And I don't know that it necessarily does. I think 
my, my experience. Um, I mean, I've worked in obviously I've worked in a school where children asked to come into the classroom in silence. They asked to, um, as in most schools now, they're asked to sit in a particular seat. They're asked to sit in a particular way. They asked to pay attention for the entire time, um, and so on and so forth. And did that result in mindless, joyless automatons? <laughs> no, it resulted in perfectly normal children with all of the um, the quirks and charms of perfectly normal children. Um, what it did result in, and, and all of the, the usual pushback that you get from kids as well, um, I said that what it did result in was children who learned an awful lot more than in uh, the more chaotic environments that I've been a part of, that I've, that I've witnessed. And, um, and it also resulted in the, the kind of challenges to authority that you're getting being about literally how, how I am sat or whether I'm paying attention rather than um, fights breaking out or, or abusive and disrespectful language, both to teachers and to other pupils, um, an environment where I felt that the, the pupils were were very safe uh, around one another, in contrast to an environment where um, I've seen sort of cases of sexual assault, basically, in the, in the corridors. Um, so, so it was a much, I would say actually a much happier, much safer environment um, beneath the surface, even though it's not easy to see that on the surface because it's not, it's not just, it's not about playing games. I, th- I think people almost think that Joy and happiness is meant to be bound up in, in game playing or something where you can see on the surface that happiness, happiness is taking place rather than an almost more calm sense. I think um, the best way of describing it is probably having a, a calm school and a calm environment in which in which people are safe. Um, so I think that's probably very that's probably very off-putting. It's something that Andrew um, t- to some people it's something that Andrew spoke to. Um, I. Personally, I'm not convinced that that fear bears out in reality for, for that reason, for, partly because of experience, but partly because of lots of other reasons. But we're moving so much further away from mathematics education now. Um, we should probably get back to it. But I think this is what, <laughs> I think this is partly what underpins a lot of the hostile rhetoric um, between these so-called kind of two camps. Like, yeah, it's guided. I think that's where some of it comes to deeply ingrained social cultural values. Well, well, let me ask you, um, Chris, would do, do these kind of forms of instruction play any part in your lessons at all? Would you would you use investigations? Would you use inquiries? Would you get kids to discover things? If so, at what stage? How would you make that judgment call that, that you're going to teach in this particular way? Sure, um, kind of. But again, as with all these things, it, it does depend upon what we mean by it. Um, I, think, I think Voltaire said, if, if you want to converse with me, define your terms. Um, <laughs> Something I did I, I did find interesting in, in Andrew's um, when Andrew talked about inquiry learning, which it, which makes it difficult for me to to respond to the idea of inquiry. He said um, he wasn't going to define what it means, or that he couldn't define what it meant. And I don't really understand how you can talk about something if if we're not going to define what it is. Um, so I'm going to do my own best to, to define what I I mean by these different things. Uh, first of all, I think within um, if we just hone in on discovery. So I think. It was in 2004, Richard Mayer wrote a paper um, entitled Should There Be a Three Strikes Rule for Discovery Learning? And his point was that discovery learning was uh, an idea in the 60s based on on a naturalistic um, view of learning, based on the idea that children could learn naturally in school the way that they learn naturally outside of school. Um, And it didn't work. And so because it didn't work, next 
people thought, well, maybe we can try sort of in, in investigations instead. We can learn through investigation. And that didn't work. And so then people say, well, okay, well, that's maybe, maybe problem-based learning. And then that didn't work. And then you get project-based learning. And that doesn't work. And then you get inquiry learning. And that doesn't really work, in my view. And so, like Richard Mayer's point was that, and this is kind of Kirshner's point, Clark's point in the 2006 paper as well, at, at the heart of all of these is a kernel which does link them together. So even if you want to argue that on the surface they are different things, at the heart of it there is something fundamental that links them together. And it's and, it, and the way that these people have grouped them together is through talking about not, not offering very much guidance or minimal guidance. Um, and the reason that's worth sort of outlining is because an explicit instruction method of teaching doesn't necessarily mean, as I pointed out earlier, um, a verbose explanation on the part of the teacher. It, it might be that, but if you look at the kind of sequences that I outlined, um, that I, I talked about in the last uh, interview and outlined on the, my blog, um, you're, you're not really telling children how to do things necessarily. When I talked about the example of um, expanding a bracket, the children were, I didn't tell them, multiply these numbers together. They deduced that from them, for themselves from the examples I shared with them. So and when I've talked about this with the teachers, they've asked me, how is this not discovery learning? It's, <laughs> it start, eventually starts to feel very discovery. We're not, like, we're not telling the children what to do. We're leaving it to them to figure out. So a key difference between this kind of, if you want to call it discovery, and what's usually meant by discovery learning, is that the examples... Um, that are shown and the sequence in which they're shown and certainly what is to be learned are all determined up front by the teacher. Whereas in um, the minimally guided, the minimally guided um, forms of instruction, every single one of them, I think, tends to involve the teacher not necessarily determining what is going to be learned and um, exposing children to lots and lots of information or ideas or um, or not very much from which lots of thoughts may or may not be, be generated, but again, will not be directed. Either way, you, you, you're, either way you're, you're creating an environment in which there's uh, real potential for cognitive overload, a huge information load um, to be placed on the, the mind of the learner. Whereas in um, the kind of sequences I'm talking about, you've kind of built it up to a point where there's only really one logical conclusion you can arrive at as to what happens next. So the amount of load is is always kept very, very low. So in one sense, that kind of discovery is always taking place, or very often taking place, but it's very different from what people usually mean when they're describing a minimally different, uh, minimally guided instructional paradigm. Um, so I suppose the follow-up question is, would I use any of those actual minimally <laughs> uh, guided instructional paradigms? And again, the answer is uh, yes, and, and I have. I mean, usually when I have, it's led to to bad results. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of a, a cross-curricular project that I ran in my second year of teaching and also in my third year of teaching between physics and maths. And it, um, I think it worked better the first time I did it than the second time. The second time when um, I did it in my second school, it kind of got blown up into this really big project with lots of different things happening. Whereas the first time, it was just a bit more contained and a bit more focused. And also, um, I only did it with the top set year eight group, whereas the second time we did it I mean, with all of year nine, um, so all these mixed belief groups. And I think the first time, it, uh, my sense, and this is very unscientific of me, my gut feeling 
was that it was more successful. I mean, I remember speaking with one of the highest achievers in that year nine group the following year and asked her what she had learned from, from something. And, and she was just baffled. She had no idea uh, what what she'd learned or what she was possible. And there was just too much and it was overwhelming. And this was taking place over the course of a week. Um, so, but, the, but there were still ways that I think these things could be useful, but we have to clear up what it is we're trying to do with them. And this is, again, where I think things get very, very confused. Rather than talking about inquiry skills or investigative ability, it would probably be better to talk about substantive knowledge and disciplinary knowledge. It's a much simpler framework. It's been defined by by the disciplines by and by um, epistemologists, I think, over decades. And we have a much clearer sense of what those things are. It's much simpler to understand as well. Um, so substantive content is, is is sort of what the discipline knows, and disciplinary knowledge is how the discipline knows it. So in maths, uh, substantive knowledge is is the normal mathematical knowledge that we tend to teach. Disciplinary knowledge would be what is it that mathematicians do in order to acquire that knowledge. Um, in science, a similar thing. Um, substantive knowledge would be scientific knowledge. It would be knowing the scientific theories and other bits and pieces. Uh, disciplinary knowledge would be understanding how scientists operate in order to acquire that knowledge. So it would be learning about the scientific method, as it were. And similarly in history as well, this, this applies across disciplines. Um, so the one thing that I do worry about with maths education in respect of this is uh, people can leave school, have done very badly in science, not really understand the science, and not know very much about science. But they still seem to have a reasonably clear sense of what scientists do and what a job in science might involve. It's a very limited sense, but they have some sense of it. Whereas um, I think people are genuinely, genuinely baffled by the idea of somebody being a mathematician. Yes. And it kind of leads to this question of, I want you to sit around doing sums all day. <laughs> and that's because that is the only experience that a lot of people have of mathematics in school. Um, so in other words, I think in science, um, although the balance is probably not quite right, we do nevertheless um, spend some time teaching uh, substantive knowledge, and we spend some time teaching disciplinary knowledge. With mathematics, we don't. We, almost, we do almost none of the disciplinary knowledge at all, as standard. And in the science exams, uh, GCSE and A-level, something about the scientific method is also assessed, whereas it's not assessed in any way, shape, or form in our standard exams for mathematics either. So we don't need them to be assessed by the exams in order to teach children something about the, disciplinary, the discipline of mathematics and its disciplinary knowledge. Um, but we have to be very clear about why we're doing it. And this is where I think things start to go wrong. I think historically there's been a belief that we can get away with teaching both of these at the same time. So rather than teaching children scientific, uh, scientific ideas or scientific theory, what we will do is get them to discover the scientific theories themselves by running, the, by running experiments. Yeah. And so this way they will learn what it's like to be a scientist at the same time as discovering the theories for themselves, which will be really interesting for them, rather than being sat there and being told the theories by somebody. Um, and this doesn't work. 
And it doesn't work in part because I think you're looking at massive overload there. You're trying to teach two huge things at the same time. But also, I think it doesn't work because you're you're trying to ask somebody to think like a scientist. And scientists are experts. Mm -hmm. And they've spent a very long time becoming experts. And um, one of the most frustrating things for me in my, uh, I think it was my fourth year at university when I was doing my master's, um, oh my God, running, like doing my master's research project, I had to sit there shaving down sheets of silicone wafer until they were nanometers thick and then cutting them into super tiny little pieces, a thirtieth the size of your fingernail, and then sticking little copper rings around them to try to keep them rigid and unbreakable, gluing this off. And I'd sit there for seven or eight hours a day doing this. And at any moment, you can break that really thin bit of wafer, and then you do it all over again. And a lot of experimental research looks like this. Yeah. And it's so hard to do and so hard to get right. So the idea that we're going to get children in schools to discover, to, to run experiments sufficiently well that they can discover ideas themselves is just absurd. They're not going to really learn about, um, like, they're not going to get good at thinking like scientists this way either by trying to do both at the same time. And also, even the idea that this will be interesting kind of falls apart because usually when people are motivated to run these experiments, they've already been hooked in by a question that they need to find an answer to. And now they're driven to do these ridiculously boring, dull, inane experiments because they really want to get to the heart of that question. So, I mean, we could very easily um, create that burning question in the minds of children and then answer it for them rather than having them to go through the, the laborious process of experimental um, research, which they're likely to not get right. Um, and, and, and if we try to set up, try to get them doing the experimental investigation without creating the, the burning question, then the whole thing is still pointless. It's the questions that drive us, I think, not the activity. We tend to keep focusing on the activity. So the same, the, the same thing with mathematics then. Um, we don't teach any of the disciplinary knowledge at all quite often. Uh, but what we could do, and we could do this with science as well, is we could do this so long as we're doing it solely for the purpose of teaching the disciplinary knowledge rather than hoping we can teach the substantive knowledge at the same time. So right. if I give a concrete example, um, rather than getting you know, the classic case study, rather than getting children to measure the circumferences and radii of circles and then discover that pi is a constant, which they don't because their levels of measurement are never accurate enough. And then even when you have to give it away and say, look, look, it's roughly the same each time, it's very often not that exciting, a bit of a letdown. And the only reason you remember the lesson is because this is the weird lesson where we took out all the string and the <laughs> circle. Um, or the Pythagoras' theorem one, where you get kids to measure the length of sides and draw up a table and then hope that they'll discover the connection between yep. A squared, B squared, and C squared. Um, instead, what you could do is say, um, there's, a, there's a standard investigative activity, something like um, draw a rectangle two by three, draw a diagonal from one corner to another, count how many squares it passes through. Yeah. And now do it for two by four, now do it for two by five, now do it for two by six. And then, you know, like, do what you want. Keep going, or you could do um, three by whatever and, and do it that way. And just look for some patterns and see what you see. Now, if you're going to do that, maybe you need a bit more structure than I've suggested there. Um, 
that seems totally fine to me. But you're doing it, almost setting it up up front. This is the kind of stuff that mathematicians do day to day. Or um, if you want to teach them about the process of creating a conjecture and then doing something to try to prove or disprove the conjecture. Again, absolutely fine, but try to do it with things that kind of don't matter. It doesn't matter if you learn. It's it's so unconnected to anything else insofar as I'm aware. It's certainly not a fundamental pattern that we need to be aware of mathematically. What's going on between the number of squares that this diagonal crosses? It doesn't matter. So rather than trying to teach things that, that matter and that are fundamental to the substantive body of mathematical knowledge that we want to gift to pupils, instead, maybe use this time as an opportunity to just kind of dip into the world of the mathematician never expecting them to be uh, mathematicians, to think like mathematicians, to be successful and discover things for themselves um, necessarily, but giving them exposure to that world so they have some sense of what it looks like to be a mathematician and what the disciplinary knowledge looks like as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does, and it it raises a couple of questions in my mind, Chris. Now, problem solving is something I want to get onto in, in a future interview with you, but just to be clear at this point, that you're not... Are you saying that the this are you saying that these are kind of generic problem solving skills that we can teach kids, or is this is this something separate from from problem solving? Yeah, yeah, no, it it would be separate because I think so. The the reason I caveat it at the end, don't expect them to think like mathematicians, is because thinking like a mathematician requires an extraordinarily large, deeply, yes. richly interconnected body of substantive knowledge. And we're teaching them the substantive knowledge through our explicit instructional methods. And we're being really successful with that. And they're developing this huge body of substantive knowledge. But what I'm suggesting is that, okay, that's great. But okay, fair enough. Maybe what we're doing right here is failing to tell them anything at all about the disciplinary content that exists as well. Um, But there's an opportunity cost here. So anytime we take out of teaching through the explicit methods to dip into, let's look at, let's do an investigation a day. That's a lesson in which they're not going to learn anything from the curriculum. It's a lesson in which, or at least don't expect them to, because some some might. But the thing is, we're not going to guarantee it now for every single child. Um, and and so it, it's a lesson where they're not learning that content. Now, when I talk about opportunity cost, opportunity cost um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're losing something that that you can't afford to lose. Um, your opportunity cost could be I'm losing a pound, but I'm gaining five pounds. So that's a good thing. So, yes, we're losing a day to teach some more substantive content, but maybe that's fine. Maybe it's more important that we're spending some lessons looking at what it's like to be a mathematician. And these things are fun. They're genuinely fun. I, I, I love running through these uh, mathematical investigations myself. Personally, I think they're really interesting. And if there were kids in that classroom who were going to grow up to be to be mathematicians and get hooked on it and get really interested and excited by it, uh, part of what's going to lead to that is probably going to be having some exposure to this kind of thing. Um, but it's with an awareness that we're probably not going to teach the substantive content successfully at the same time. So we have to apportion the time um, to one outcome versus the other carefully. And we have to make some judgments about what we think the right ratio is rather than thinking we can get away by being all of it, sort of a have our cake and eat it mentality. Got, got it. And my, my, my other question I want to ask is that I'm a little bit obsessed with, with what motivates students, particularly in maths. And 
two kind of key drivers uh, of motivation seem to be kids feeling um, a sense of control in what they're doing and also kids feeling that there's a wider purpose to what they're doing. And it seems to me, again, having spoke to Andrew, that they're two areas that inquiry definitely kind of seems to tick those boxes. Kids are certainly in control of the direction of the lesson. They're in control of what uh, what they choose to investigate, what inquiries they choose to pursue. And the fact that kids have chosen that particular line of inquiry also kind of lends itself to a sense of that there's a greater purpose to what they're, what they're doing. There's a reason for them to, to investigate the prompt. There's a reason for them to request information from, from the teacher. Um, can you get those same levels of motivation in terms of purpose and control from explicit instruction or or does it not matter as much in your opinion? I think you can definitely achieve extremely high levels of motivation. Um, the, uh, but, but how we're achieving that motivation is also up for, for grabs. I mean, you mentioned purpose and uh, control. I think, so first of all, the the greater predictor of motivation that I'm aware of, the greatest predictor that I'm aware of is success. Uh, I'm I'm doing this because I think I'm going to be successful. And I think the the explicit instructional approaches are the the best way of guaranteeing success for every single child in the room, so far as I'm aware. So I think straight away that's going to lead to motivation, and it has done the, the, the most the most motivated I've seen kids is when they, they think they're going to be successful uh, because that's what their experience tells them. Um, but also purpose and control. I'm not entirely sure how how important control is. Um, and there are... I, we, we have this kind of... this misconception that choice is always a good thing. And that's not necessarily true. Just, to, just as a counterexample to the control argument. I mean, uh, oh, this is almost related to Dan Pink's thing about mastery, autonomy, and purpose. Um, and this would be autonomy, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, I think that it can seem motivating. But um, first of all, is, it, is that necessary? And I don't know that it always is. Um, the, the paradox of choice or choice paralysis is the idea that sometimes we're given too much choice and that can... Um, make it difficult to make a decision in the first instance yeah. and then after we've made the choice we can worry we don't feel as good about it as if we had fewer choices previously because there were lots of other good options available to us and we worry <laughs> yeah. about not having chosen the other good options i kind of one of the things i really dislike about going to um, a chinese or thai restaurant sometimes is that they'll have menus with 150 items on it and I can barely begin to navigate it. So just, just give me like five mains to choose from and I guarantee I'll pick what I'm going to like. Um, so that's, that's just a counterpoint. It doesn't mean that having a sense of autonomy is, is never motivating. But obviously it is. Um, but, then, but then we've also got... Like, we, we don't want motivation as, a, as, a, as an end in and of itself. We want yes. motivation so that it leads to greater success. And the more control we give it isn't necessarily going to lead to greater learning outcomes. It doesn't mean they're necessarily going to learn more. Um, and again, if we sort of test this at an extreme end, I could say, oh, I'm going to give you complete control over your time today. What do you want to do? I want to go home and play Call of Duty. See you later. <laughs> uh, so you know, so we're already, we're always going to have to exert some control. And I suspect that that would be the response of most children, even in an inquiry classroom. Um and then, what, what was the other? There was, um, uh, the pur- purpose was the purpose. Other. 
purpose is a purpose is a really interesting one. I I absolutely do think that purpose is, is really interesting. Oh no, so this is the other thing I was thinking about control. I'm just thinking about my own experience of learning, and because I think this this autonomy or control thing links into what might be I'm increasingly thinking is a misconception around the idea of independent learning. And we see we 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 have this language independent learning and independent learner, and we think that they're good things. And then we think we know what it means to be an independent learner. And the image we seem to communicate to one another with this language is something around a person, an adult or child, determining for themselves what they want to learn and how they're going to learn it. But then what's really interesting is that actually, when you dig into the, well, how are you going to learn it? And it almost invariably comes down to I'm going to read a book or I'm going to listen to a series of lectures or a podcast mm. or do some lecture course online like Coursera and I say this because I think I, I consider myself to be a pretty independent learner I'm a lifelong learner, I constantly try to learn new things um, and I listen to podcasts by people who are obsessed with lifelong learning as well, but everything that they describe invariably comes down to um, reading books and maybe doing these courses online. The the added thing, I think, maybe will be also talking with others who are interested in these ideas as well. Um, but but that's usually where it comes from. Like the, the original source of the knowledge is still a static medium where somebody else has dictated what is going to be a part of the course content and has dictated the sequence in which I'm going to study it as well. So I mean, it, it, it's very, very rare that even those of us who consider ourselves independent learners go away and conduct our own controlled experiments from first principles. We may do some of it, but it's not where most of our learning comes from. We still continue to learn mostly from the ideas of others, from considering the ideas of others. So I think even then, I wonder if this idea around control and autonomy as it relates to the idea of independent learning, I wonder if maybe we've misconceptualized what independent learning really means. And then this last thing about purpose, I do think is very important, but there are lots of ways of, of, of achieving purpose, I think. And there are even lots of ways of achieving, like I say, that idea of a burning question in a, in a pupil's mind. It's, um, it, it could come from the idea of um, setting up a situation where they, they need to ask for something. But in, in, the, in the sort of free-flowing inquiry model, as it's been explained, as far as I understand it, I get where I get confused just from a logistics perspective. It feels like I've now got 30 kids potentially asking eight different questions each, and and then there's there's a sense of and we've chosen to go down this route and that's meaningful to them because they've asked the question. Well, have they? Has every single child in that room asked that question, or did some of them ask it? And then we kind of have this faux democracy where I say where where I say we're doing it because this is what we've decided. I'm, I, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'd love to get into some inquiry classrooms to see firsthand. I haven't yet. Um, but there are definitely other ways of achieving it with explicit instruction methods. And Dan Mayer, um, has a, who talked about this on, on your podcast, has a great example of this. If, you know, if this is the aspirin one, it's the headache. Mm, yes. It's that idea of setting up a situation where um, something can't be achieved. Or doing something is really long and convoluted, um, like what was? Uh, it's fa- factoring quadratics. Factorizing quadratics is my favourite that he does. I think that's absolutely excellent. Which one's that? What's he do? 
So what he does there is he puts a quadratic expression on the board. Um, I'm going to I'm going to pick one now that doesn't factorize, but let let's see if I can think. So let's say x squared plus two x minus fifteen. I think that factorizes. So he put that expression on the board and he'll say, right, I want you to try and think of a value of x that's going to make that equal to zero. And he gives them all a bit of time to do. So they're practicing a bit of substitution and so on. And eventually someone discovers that I think three works in that particular instance. And they get that. And then he says, right, there's actually another value you out there that, it, that equals zero and the kids are trying for five and ten minutes and and inevitably maybe some some find it but it's certainly struggle involved and yeah. obviously the answer is minus five or whatever and right. it's it's by experiencing the long cut it's by experiencing that struggle and then knowing that there's a more efficient then then being told that there's actually a more efficient way of doing it suddenly provides the purpose for that more efficient way as opposed to simply saying this is how you factorize quadratics so just that like i i'm obsessed with that aspirin headache thing and he does it for indices he does it for linear inequalities there's yeah a whole host of those are that that's my favorite way of um, ascribing purpose i think I think that's a brilliant example, and the, the, there are lots of examples like these which come from explicit method uh, that come from explicit methods. When we come to the, um, even when you factorize, you reminded me, um, and you've got in, a th in one of the brackets three x plus four. And you, you could say right, so the solution is negative four over three, and um, I'm, there is a reason why. I'm not going to tell you why today, but I will in two days' time. And I, I had all the, the, an increasing number of kids in, the, in my year nine class asking me, yeah, but why does that work? Until we finally got to this lesson where I promised to tell them. <laughs> and now suddenly, yeah, like, well, perhaps not every one of them, but a whole bunch of them are ready to learn, are ready to hear yes. why. Um, or I've even got a, a series, like one of my favorite lessons I put together in my second year of teaching, actually, that I still come back to, certainly in principle. Um, you know, why do we write equations and solve them? And I realized that one of the problems we have is that most equations solve like, model problems that are incredibly simple to solve. So um, if you have x plus, uh, x plus uh, 3 is equal to 10, yes. essentially what you're modeling there is a problem like um, Craig goes into a shop and buys a burger and a drink and spends £10. The drink was £3. How much was the burger? Yes. £7. So you, you don't need <laughs> algebra to solve that. But... Um, I wrote out lots of different word problems like that, which uh, link to two-step equations and then unknowns on both sides and something inside a bracket and simultaneous equations. And I had ones where the solutions were integers or, or, or they're negative or the decimals. So and you just give kids the word problems in sequence of ascending difficulty and they can get so far and different kids can get to a different, um, can, can get further than others, but they all get stuck somewhere because they're all because unless they're already really good at algebraic modeling yes their, their method is to just try to think it through to sort of like brute force it um and then you can come back and say right i'm going to show you how to be able to answer all of these different questions um and you're looking at how to answer the you're looking at how to set up the equation you, you learn you're sort of looking at how to solve the equations and then you're looking separately at how to turn the word problem into an equation so you, you kind of you've got this idea of algebraic modeling followed by the idea of solving the equations and how that is providing answers to, to questions again. There's there's loads of them. Um, you can just yeah you can definitely set things up so that the question what's another good one I came across recently standard index form like write out the size of um, the sun in grams <laughs> and the mass of the sun in grams and or um, I think when I 
introduced standard form, I um, we'd just come off the back of combinatorics in year ten, and I think I asked them to work out the combination, how many combinations of seating plan were possible uh, in just in the classroom with twenty twenty six kids. How many different seating plans are possible? And then write out the number. And the number's enormous with like loads yeah. of zeros at the end. Um, and then I said, like, right, let me show you how many it is for the entire assembly hall when all three classes come together. And it's it's a number with like a hundred something zeros at the end of it. So like, well, you know, let's look at a shorter way of writing this out now. Wouldn't that be convenient? So lots of different ways of doing that. That's that's fantastic. And last last question for me on this particular section, Chris, and that's and again, it might maybe a difficult one to answer. I don't know, but are there any advantages of these minimally guided instruction methods over explicit instruction? Can you see any any kind of positives to them that that is lacking in an explicit instruction approach? I I personally struggle to come up with. I mean, I think they might be more fun. From the teacher's perspective, I think when I've done things like this, I I, I enjoy the lesson. It's it's a really it, it's a really fun lesson to um to run, and also it's it can be easier, I think, for a teacher not to get it right, but easier to uh, or to, you know, not not to do well and have a, a situation where where kids are uh, feel that they're engaged with the activities. But I think it can be. You, you sort of get to step back a little bit as a teacher in, in, in lessons like that when I've done them and sort of leave it to the, the kids to do to do the work. Uh, whereas with explicit instruction, I think you have to do a lot more and you don't have to necessarily, with, with the minimally guided stuff, I don't think you have to create as many resources up front either because you, you can create, say, with inquiry, Andrew talks about like having a prompt, you can create a prompt and then the kids are going to direct, are going to sort of figure out where it goes next. You probably need some experience in that situation so you can respond to different um, to different possible directions it goes. But you don't have to create uh, worksheets or examples or questions up front. Um, whereas for uh, an explicit instruction model, it doesn't matter which model you take, whether that's a straight-up lecture or it's like a highly interactive Q&A session via something like Engelman's DI program or the kind of things that Greg Ashman describes, you are still going to have to think very carefully in advance. You're going to have to create probably quite a bit of resource in advance. Um, again, with experience, you can get to the point where, like I described, you you can just write these things out on an index card on the way in um, and then write them up on the board. You don't need any technology or anything fancy. Um, it, it's quite straightforward. Uh, just, uh, you just need like a visualizer so you can project a a sheet of paper maybe you've written up onto onto the board. A bit like the traditional OHPs, in fact. Um, but if we but then if we're coming back around to outcomes, which is where I started thinking, um, I'm not really sure that I'm not convinced that there are any advantages. Because if we're talking about learning the substantive content, there is just no way that I can see that uh, people are gonna better learn the substantive content through these inquiry methods. Um, Maybe when I mean there is, it's worth bearing in mind the expertise reversal effect. The idea that um, people once they've reached a certain degree of knowledge do seem to learn better from less guided uh, methods of instruction. But I think it's very difficult to define where that point is. Um, I think if you think about it in terms of um, in terms of academia, 
and where we start and where we end up. It's interesting when you look at the specifications for level six bachelor's degrees compared with level seven master's degrees compared with level eight uh, PhDs, because even at the bachelor's level at level six, the the outcome is expected to be descriptive. You're largely expected to articulate effectively the stuff that you have been taught over the last three years. Um, when you get to level seven, when you get to this master's level, um, the criteria now specify that there needs to be a degree of critique, of critical analysis on your part. And by the time you get to PhD level, uh, level eight, you're expected to be synthesizing new knowledge from scratch. So there's definitely something a little bit strange about expecting that kind of outcome, which is reserved for 22 and above year olds and trying to apply it to eight-year-olds and 13-year-olds who know far less. Um, I think if we're trying to defi- if we're trying in any way, shape or form to define expertise, um, if you look, again, if we have this picture of like this idea of zooming out, not focusing it in on our own little world and zoom out to the big picture, it seems to be that over the, the decades, I guess over the centuries, expertise has been defined at this sort of post-master's level. Um, and that's when the, with a sort of gradation up to it. Um, but, but, so, but even so, like, let's, let's bear it in mind because I, I don't know exactly what expertise means. I think actually, um, Paul Kirshen has done some work trying to define, um, trying to define what that might mean. Or I might just be confusing it with the idea of element interactivity and the uh, sort of complexity of what you're asking somebody to learn. Um, but, but broad, like the vast majority of cases, my expectation is that in terms of substantive content, almost everybody is going to learn more, more quickly, more efficiently and better via an explicit instructional method. And then if we look beyond the kind of substantive content and we say we, we have these um, things like problem solving or investigative skills that we want people to learn, those things as well, I strongly suspect, are mostly biologically primary. And what that means is we actually don't need to teach them, by and large, that they are learned as a function of um, the substantive content, and that we are naturally, we are natural problem solvers, we are natural <coughs> pattern seekers, or pattern sniffers, as some people like to call it. Uh, we are natural investigators. We do these things naturally. And what we might need to do is offer some guidance and some structure around this. But you don't need to and you probably can't teach it directly. So what I mean by that is I think about um, Dan Willingham's excellent video, Teaching Content is Teaching Reading. It's a very similar um, very similar model that I think he's describing there. His point is that if you want to teach reading, then once you've got past decoding and some basic vocabulary, you don't do it by teaching reading. You can't teach reading. Reading comprehension is not a thing you can teach. Instead, it's a function of how much you know about the thing you're already reading. And the more you know about it, the better you will comprehend what you're reading. But he offers an exception. Um, towards the end of the video, um, anyone who hasn't seen it should definitely look it up. Teaching content is teaching reading. It's only 10 minutes long. Towards the end of the video, he says, um, he points out that in American classrooms, and this is probably true in British classrooms as well, um, in, in the early grades, I think it's sort of grade four, grade three, grade five, he's looking at something like 200 hours a year 
100 to 200 hours probably, are dedicated to trying to teach reading comprehension skills. But And what he allows for is he says that if you do this, you do actually see an improvement. You see an improvement in reading comprehension if you do this up to about 10 hours of instruction. <laughs> and then after 10 hours, everything else is redundant and you see no benefit from it. But they're sinking hundreds upon hundreds of hours into it. So I think it's a similar thing here. Uh, we probably would see some benefit in problem solving and investigation um, and in and people's ability to think systematically, uh, to, to seek out patterns, to ask questions, and to ask good questions, like the right questions, in order to, um, in order to uh, advance their own thinking. We probably would see some improvement in that um, if we did a little bit of it. But I suspect there's a very there's a hard limit. So maybe if we take Willingham's hours, it could be completely different. But if we take Willingham's hours, maybe it's like you spend ten hours on this, and that might be ten hours a year, that might be ten hours in the entire lifetime of somebody's mass education. I don't know. Um, but then that's it. And then what's going to make them better at those things after that is learning more maths. And it reminds me of when um, when I first came across Dan Mayer, I'd been spending um, years. I'd been spent quite a couple of years because I was trying to apply to management consultancies, which I think I talked about at the start of the last um, interview. And the way these consultancies work, they ask you, they have what they call case study interviews. And I picked up a, and one of, the way a lot of them work, like Deloitte and PwC and Accenture, the way they set it up, they give you lots of information in advance. They give you about four pages of information. Then they ask you questions like, what do you think this company's main priority is or where are things going wrong? What solutions would you recommend? How would you prioritize it? But the, the really top-tier strategy consultancies like McKinsey, Bain, and BCG, they don't do that. What they do is they ask a question like, and I picked this up from a, from a book that I, I got to learn how to, to deal with these kinds of problems. Um, your client is an iron mining company that has just purchased a piece of iron-rich land in Australia. I would like you to tell us whether or not um, the client should mine the iron ore. And in giving your answer, I want you to tell us the price per ton of mining the iron, um, the break-even point, and the impact on the global market. (laughs) And unlike the last questions I described, you get no information at all. <laughs> and the first time I read that, I think I was 23 or 24, um, and I read that, and I just like my mind was blank. It was like staring at a brick wall. Um, but what I learned through reading the book was how to ask those questions. And, and you start by asking questions like, well, how much is the equipment going to cost to to put in place? And well, how long will the equipment last for? And, and how long do we think we're going to be able to mine the iron ore until we run out of it? Um, and you keep asking questions like this to gather the information you need to be able to answer the original questions that you were given. And then when I saw Dan Mayer's TED Talk, I realized that he was describing a very similar process. Instead of a textbook question where it gives you all the information, and then your job is to plug it into the question you already, the, the, the formula you know about. Remove it. Ask a question like, you've got a bucket, it's filling up with water, how long until it's full? And then leave it to the kids to ask the questions they need to get the information yes. they need to be able to answer the question. And I was really quite motivated by, by that as an idea. And um, I have tried it out a few times, and you do get really interesting questions from um, that kids coming up with. And they're also quite 
um, interested and inspired when you point out all the questions they could have asked that they didn't think of. Like, is there a hole in the bucket? Is there any, is there any water in the bucket to begin with? But also they can come up with ridiculous questions. I, the, the thing is, like, what is a sensible question? Because they could ask, oh, does anybody empty the bucket partway through? Um, or, or like, There's lots of different questions that could be asked which are just... Um, or, you know, is the, um, is, is, the, is the bucket sat on the back of a van? Why is that important? Oh, because the rocking of the van might mean that some spills out. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it becomes like a game to see. Yes. That's the most yeah. ridiculous question that's still somehow <laughs> tangentially related. To that <laughs> um, so there, there's definitely challenges in controlling that logistically. Um, is there still a place for it? Like, again, maybe, but I think, I think there's a real limit in terms of how many hours it's worth investing. I think, um, I mean, I learned how to ask those kinds of questions in a, in a in a business case study interview question setting, but I don't think I've learned a generic skill there that I can necessarily apply to other settings because, again, you need to know what are the types of questions to ask in this setting, what are the types of information I need. So if we're going to do it, it would have to be specifically to maths anyway. Um, and I think, and, and yeah, and I think, there's, again, there's probably a real limit to it. I think once you've, you've got the basic idea of it, what you need is more mathematical knowledge, more pre-existing mathematical knowledge that we've already figured out. And you just need to learn that and how to apply that to different contexts. Got it. Okay, Chris. Well, I want to turn our attention now to three words that have uh, have kind of just been playing around in my mind over the last 18 months or so, ever since I started doing all my reading and, and going through a bit of a, a mid-career crisis. And that's performance learning and understanding. So I want to start by asking you what on the face of it may seem a relatively straightforward question, but I'm sensing it's a bit more complex. And that is, what does it mean for a student to understand something in maths? And as a teacher, can we actually check for understanding? Sure. So I think the, there are two conceptualizations of understanding that I find very useful and very useful. And I think I need them both. I, either one of them on their own is a bit deficient. And that would be um, a sort of cognitivist view of understanding and a behaviorist view of understanding. Um, from what I'm told, the, the cognitive, like, the, the cognitivist view does um, also contain the behaviourist view, but it's I separate them out this way anyway. Um, but if I go back a few decades first, because a lot of maths teachers, especially relatively new maths teachers, will have been taught about Richard Skemp when they went through training, who in, I think it's the late 70s, published a seminal paper, which was huge at the time, um, and outlined two distinct um, descriptions of mathematical understanding as he saw it, and he called them instrumental and relational and the instrumental understanding was this idea of almost you're just kind of learning how to plug things into a formula you're learning how to answer a particular question and and that's it you're learning how to pass an exam as it were um, whereas the relational understanding for him was about having um, an appreciation or knowledge or awareness of all the different connections between different mathematical ideas and having the explanations for why they work as well. Now, off the back of this, I think I think at the time this was great. Like, this was this was a brilliant piece of work. He'd went around and interviewed lots of different maths teachers and found that this was how they were talking about the word understanding, using two different meanings, um, but the same word. So some people would say, "How do you know this child understands Pythagoras' theorem?" Well, because look, they got all the all the answers right. Um, and they can calculate all the hypotenuse. 
Whereas another teacher might say something about how they're able to connect it to the squares on the side of the um, triangle, and they can find the heights and of a triangle, and can they and they can connect it to the cosine rule and all these different bits and pieces. Um, now the part where I think Skem went wrong, and that's led, to, and and again this is important to talk about because it's now become part of the oxygen. It's it's part of the air we breathe, and we we think in these terms even if we haven't consciously heard of Skem before. Where I think he went wrong is he started to define two types of learner that he saw as well, what he called a relational learner or an instrumental learner, and he defined two kinds of teaching instrumental teaching and relational teaching and he said the instrumental learner doesn't really care about the the whys and the wherefores they just want to know how to get the answer right and they're happy with that and so if you teach them instrumentally they're fine but the relational learners they will never be satisfied by that they need to know why they need to know why this works and if you don't tell them then they will be dissatisfied and they will switch off Conversely, if you were to teach relationally and you teach the why and the, the conceptual understanding, <clears throat> then you've got the relational learner and the instrumental learner might switch off because they don't really care. But as soon as you get to the end and you talk about the hook, uh, you, you talk about how to get the answer, they'll switch back on and so they get what they need as well. His conclusion was teach relationally. I think he made an enormous mistake here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think one of the mistakes he made was that he created a a binary situation, a false dichotomy, it's one or the other. And so I much prefer um, the way that Dan Willingham talks about this in terms of inflexible and flexible knowledge, because rather than talking about uh, a binary setup, he describes a continuum. He says that all understanding starts as inflexible knowledge, and then as you acquire more knowledge, it moves towards becoming increasingly flexible. He also says that flexible knowledge is what experts have. So if you're trying to teach flexible knowledge directly, immediately, it's like you're trying to rock up to period two on a Tuesday and teach expertise. Yes. It's just doomed to failure. You need a plan, a roadmap from a start point to an end point and how you're going to get there. Um, so the, first of all, that's how I, how I see this, this kind of develop, development of understanding is, um, is something that happens over time, and it's a continuum, it's not a binary one or the other. And um, where I've seen this go wrong, I mean, I know I've taught um, kids in year 11 as a unit on proof. I taught them um, where the formulae for triangles and trapezia came from and parallelograms. And partway through talking about the trapezium, one of them said, oh, I remember our year seven teacher telling us this. And everyone else in the room, like, did they? So they didn't even remember it. So what had happened there was um, they'd, they'd been told, almost exactly like Skem suggested, right? they were given the why, then they were told the formula, and then for five years they just kept using the formula, and then they'd forgotten the rationale that they'd been taught way back when they were 11 years old. Um, whereas I suspect by bringing that rationale in later, um, it's more likely to stick, but actually I think you probably need to do other things. Like You need to come back to it in certain ways. If you don't come back to it, it's probably almost always going to be forgotten in reality. Um, so back to these, these two concepts of understanding, the um, cognitivist and the behaviorist, and I'll link them to what I was saying about um, Scamp and, and Willingham. The, the cognitivist one is where I start, and this is the idea of understanding as, as a schema building. So you have sort of almost picture a piece of knowledge and you could have then another piece of knowledge and I almost just picture like a 
blank sheet and now you've got a couple of bits of knowledge and they're disconnected from one another and then a few other bits of knowledge come in and they're all disconnected but then maybe they start to become connected so you you see there's a relationship between these two bits of knowledge that you previously learned um i see understanding as being a function of the amount of no so you're almost creating like a network diagram and so i see uh, understanding as being a function of the quantity of nodes in that network as well as the quantity of um, arcs, the, the lines between the nodes. And the more of those we have, the more relationships and the more bits of knowledge we have, the more we understand from a cognitivist perspective. And, and this lends itself, the reason I like this one is because it lends itself very nicely to that idea of, if you think about understanding and the way that we use the word understand in our language, we ask questions like, do you understand? Hmm. And then that automatically invites a yes or no response, binary, yes, I understand, or no, I do not understand. So we tend to talk about understanding day-to-day with our day-to-day vocabulary as a binary, yes or no, when it's probably a continuum. And so this, co- this cognitivist picture lends itself very, very neatly to this idea that understanding is something that continues to grow and build forever and never ends. There's never a moment when you understand when before you didn't it's just greater understanding um so that's the the cognitive picture and i like it for that reason the problem with it is that it doesn't really do anything to help us evaluate understanding in the classroom now this is where the behaviorist picture of understanding becomes much more useful with the behavior the the way that um behaviorism operates it, it, it operates entirely in terms of what you can actually observe what you can physically observe so it, it gets the same because it's the behaviors that you can observe. And so in this model, you're defining understanding in terms of the either the questions to which a person can successfully respond or the type or quality of response that a person gives to a question. And then based on those, you will, um, you will, you will, there's a sort of picture of understanding being built there. And this is how a lot of teachers, when I talk to teachers about you know, how do you know, what do you think understanding is? This is how they tend to talk. Um, a, a child understands if they can if they can explain this or can do that or something else. So usually going beyond the sort of standard questions to something like explaining why or something something more. But it's not very well thought through quite often. And I think this is where we go wrong with it. So the idea with the behaviorist interpretation of understanding is you're drawing a line in the sand somewhere. Um, so first of all, you're not saying they understand if. You're saying, I, I want understanding up to a point that is exhibited, I think, by the responses to these questions. So you're not saying it has ended. They now understand everything that they could possibly understand. They understand now, whereas before they didn't. You're just saying, this is where I've drawn the line in the sand. Um, and a concrete example I give of this is the idea of asking somebody the question, what are the causes of the First World War? And you could ask... Um, an eight-year-old who's never been taught anything about the First World War, and they will not be able to respond at all. Um, and you might be able to ask someone who's a bit older, and they might give, uh, might be able to start talking, or they've been told something about it, and they might start talking about um, the Archduke of um, Austria-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand, being shot. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's as far as they go. They say, yeah, uh, Franz Ferdinand was shot, and that caused the First World War. Maybe um, a more sophisticated 
student responds something about there being lots of treaties connecting all these different countries together and all the treaties are triggered and then the whole world goes to war. Um, maybe an, an adult who knows a bit more offers a more sophisticated and nuanced interpretation of of why that led to war. Maybe they start talking about how the war was inevitable, whether or not Franz Ferdinand was shot, something else would have been the trigger. But then you could come to somebody who is a professor of history specializing in early 20th century history. And do you not think that their response to that question would be even more detailed and complex and nuanced still? In other words, they have an even deeper understanding of that content than than everybody else I've described at this point. So the understanding never really ends, it never finishes, and it's exhibited by the responses to questions that we can give. And what we have to do is just say, um, what, kind, what, what question, where are we drawing our line in the sand, and what kinds of questions do we want to see um, responses to? And this is how we can check for that understanding as well. So in the simultaneous equations sequence, we included questions that are not normally included, like adding together two or three equations, um, because that, in our minds, that, that demonstrates an understanding of the process for solving simultaneous equations that is absent if you just go from start to finish in that, that sort of multi-step process without honing in on and focusing on adding and subtracting equations just on their own. Um, so I think that the cognitivist model lends itself to um, Willingham's idea of, of flexible knowledge. It, it helps us to get, move past this traditional binary view of understanding, either or, yes or no, do or don't, and move it towards something which is, um, is constantly ongoing and constantly developing. And then the behaviorist perspective gives us a way of, of thinking about this quite carefully. So rather than just a... Um, a vague sense of, oh, they'll understand if they can explain something. Really carefully defining what are the questions that lead to it, that I think exhibit, um, represent understanding. And, and, and what, like, what am I not, what am I deliberately choosing not to include as well? Um, I always think the, they'll be able to explain why line of argument is, is so, so flawed. And it's so easy to show how flawed it is because all you need to do is look at something like um, teaching the formula for the volume of a sphere <laughs> to realize that you can teach the formula and teach children to use the formula incredibly easily. You might even, fair enough, be able to draw relationships between um, the, the, the formula for the volume of a sphere, the surface area of a sphere, the area of a circle, and the circumference of a circle. And this is something that I have done in the past as well. It's um, because it's quite, you can just look at it and see that there's something connecting them, but explaining what it is, is or explaining why the formula for the, the volume of a sphere is 4 thirds pi r cubed. That's a lot more work than just teaching somebody what the formula is and showing them how to use it. Um, so the idea that why means understanding, I think is just a bit, a, a little bit unsophisticated. I think it's much more about really carefully selecting what questions exactly aligned with what responses you're expecting to see you think exhibit an appropriate degree of understanding for the level at which you are teaching. 
And just related to that, Chris, because uh, this is a, a conversation I've had with uh, both Daisy Christodoulou, um, I think Greg Ashman, I brought this up with this, I'm, uh, Nick Rose, I ask it to everybody, and it's, it's directly related to this, because I'm obviously obsessed with, with formative assessment or assessment for learning or whatever you want to call it. And I know people like David Didow have, have, have argued that it's fundamentally flawed because of this distinction between learning and performance, that how do you know you're actually... Um, seeing evidence of learning when you ask a, a student a question so just to take your your example there when you're trying to elicit understanding does it matter when you ask that question does it does it need does there need to be a delay from when you've taught it or can you ask this really good question immediately following instruction to to try and determine understanding yeah i, d I don't really understand why there's anything controversial in the space for me that the, the answer is so straightforward um Asking a question in the so so what we're saying is that performance uh, happens sort of in the moment. Learning happens over time, or learning would be the ability to perform at some point in the future. That would be evidence that learning had taken place because that would be evidence that a change in long-term memory had taken sure. place. Um, so sure, you cannot assess learning in the moment, and you cannot immediately assess learning. But what you can immediately the way that I kind of break this up actually. I just like this language because it's simple and straightforward. And I think it works. I break it up into getting it and keeping it. So what you can do is assess whether or not someone's got it. Um, can they do it right here, right now? Yes, they can. Great, they got it. But what you're trying to assess with the whole learning thing is, have you assessed whether or not they're going to keep it? And that is something that you can't assess in the moment. The only way you could possibly assess that is by allowing some time to pass and then reassessing. But that learning, you, you can't keep it if you never got it. Yes, yeah. So the, so, so the learning can't take place without the performance at some point. And we can still assess the performance. And if the result of our assessment is, no, they haven't got it, they can't do it, well, they're not going to magically suddenly <laughs> have learned it six months down the line unless they've got to went and submit additional work. So obviously, what we're set, we are assessing performance rather than learning, but that's still useful, and we should still be doing that. Got it. No, I'm very happy with that, Chris. That's perfect. That and related to this this topic of understanding, one of my favourite blog posts that you've ever written was was the one you did about um, conceptual understanding and procedural fluency, um, and it was a wonderful piece. And I just I just wondered if you could just take us through how do you decide kind of what order to, to teach things? Well, whether you go for the procedural fluency first, whether you try and develop the conceptual understanding first, mm. what, what, what's the kind of criteria that you use? And perhaps with some, some concrete examples, if possible. This is the how and the why thing, right? Yes. Um, should you teach the why before the how? So I think where this goes wrong is um, different different kinds of conceptualization and people confusing them and getting them mixed up. So let's say I want to teach somebody how to add fractions. Surely they need to know what a fraction is first. So there needs to be some sort of conceptualization of what a fraction is and actually what addition is also yes. before you can learn how to add fractions. Um, but then we get into this, this question of so in, in terms of teaching that, there are, oh, and let's focus on perhaps the, oh, no, the interesting one, this came up on Twitter recently, This the, the multiplying fractions. Yes. Why does multiplying tops and bottoms work? Um, and, and people seem to really like this, let's draw a diagram and show the pieces being crossed 
and look, it's the same number of we get the same number. I, and they think that that's explaining why, and I don't understand why people think that explains why, because I've followed that myself, and I I, uh, I understand what's going on with it. And this and is the this is the rectangle, isn't it? So, so if you're multiplying yeah. three fifths times a quarter, you're drawing the rectangle. Yes. You're, you're dividing one bit into you're dividing one side into fifths and three of them, one side into quarter with and uh, one of them shaded, and where they cross gives you the answer of what three twentieths or whatever it should be. Exactly, and I, I guess get confused because I don't think that that does offer a why. It hasn't answered to my satisfaction why the multiplication algorithm works. Um, so, in terms of the why, this is how, which is what people tend to get confused with. This is how I tend to think about it. Um, first of all, I think teaching why something works, or why an algorithm or a process works, where possible, is probably a good thing. But you have a question of sequence, and you have a question of when to do it and when not to do it. In terms of sequencing, if I think back to that cognitivist picture of understanding, if I'm teaching the why at the same as a means of teaching the algorithm, so let's say I'm trying to talk through um, from first principles the addition algorithm for fractions, or I'm trying to talk through from first principles. Uh, differentiation. And this is our first lesson on differentiation. The way I picture this in my mind is a little bit like sitting on one of those knowledge nodes in this network and then heading off in some random direction along a new arc which is being created, a new line, into the unknown. And you're kind of just asking people to follow you the whole way there and they don't know really, they don't have a sense of what direction they're heading in. They don't know why they're heading in that direction. They don't know how long they have to, how long it's going to take. It, you just, you're just going to get people asking, are we nearly there yet? <laughs> um, and then by the time you get there to the realization, or, or that, that final sort of conclusion of how the algorithm works, by this point, massive, massive cognitive overload, because you're asking them to learn so much all at once amidst a lot of unknown. So for me, I almost invariably try to include the explanations for why after the what or the how. Um, so I would have the an example of this came up. Another example would be um, angles and parallel lines. Getting from because you could once you know one of them, you can derive all the others in terms of it. I think. Yes. In terms of the first one. Um, but what I would prefer to do is, is teach those three angle facts, the alternative, the co-interior, and the, um, so the alternate, co-interior, and whatever the one I'm forgetting is. Corresponding. Corresponding, that's it. Um, teach them first, and then afterwards show how they're related to one another. And I think if you do that, now the way I picture it is we've got two nodes in this network, um, possibly sat in isolation, um, for the time being. But now we're starting at one of the nodes and we're saying we're going to head towards that other node over there. You can see it? You can see it. Good. So you know where we're going. You know how long the distance is. You know how long it's going to take us to get there. And once we get there, what you're going to have is the realization of how we got from A to B. I see this a bit like, um, you know when you walk around a big city and you're used to, maybe if, I'm thinking, I live in London, so if you're thinking of like, taking the tube or something and actually you walk around an area that you haven't walked around before, and suddenly you realize, oh, that's how these two bits are connected. Yes. I see it as like that, whereas um, if you try to do it the other way and give the why first, 
I see it as starting out at a part of the city and heading into a new part of the city that you've never been to before. And when you get there, there's there's no moment of realization. There's no interest. It's just, yeah, more unknown stuff, more stuff that's unfamiliar to me. And are there exceptions, Chris? Like, would you, are there times when the why does have to come first? It's a great question, and I'm not sure. I think um, you need to know what it is you're talking about. So I think that idea of having... Um, things being conceptualized first, knowing what a fraction is and going into the concept of a fraction first. But do the algorithms and processes need to be... I mean, I've been thinking about differentiation recently. With differentiation, the way I see it is you need to know that... So you need to know... So what do you need to know? You need to know that um, you can't find the gradient of a curve because this gradient is always changing. So you need to understand that. You need to have some concept of gradient always changing. You then need to know that there is a different equation that will tell you the gradient. Well, you need to know that the gradient can be measured at a specific point. You then need to know that um, there's a new type of equation that will tell you the gradient at a specific point. And then the next thing, which is interesting, is how do I get from the fact that I can get from my starting equation to my new equation, my gradient equation. Um, So there's a how to get from point A to point B after you've practiced using the gradient equation a bit. Um, And I don't... And I think just seeing how to do that, using it as a, treating it as a transformation concept again, really straightforward. And I'm going to come to explaining how, like, why that works at a later point. Um, I'm not sure that why ever needs to come before. I wonder. I do wonder. I mean, I'll keep thinking about the question, and I do wonder if maybe there were some times when the why is so straightforward that it can come before the what. Um, I'm thinking about say index form, maybe x to the power of zero. Um, could you just could you just show the pattern, or do you need to? No, I think even then, I think even then, I'd because that's just no. I think even with that, I would explain the fact first, and then show the relationship afterwards. Um, the the more interesting one is the fact that there are some cases when I wouldn't explain the why, and even though I'm really keen on explaining differentiation and trying to explain integration from first principles as well, so you have a. Um, uh, quite a fully fleshed out conceptualization of calculus. When I'm looking at the, the product rule and the chain rule, and um, what's the third one, the quotient rule, I'm less, I, I'm undecided yet as to whether or not I feel any compulsion to derive them and explain where they come from. Um, so I think, and, and again, that, that example of the volume of a, of a sphere, certainly at I mean, you could teach someone to use the volume of a sphere in year seven or eight. It's it's not that difficult. But teaching them why that's the formula for the volume of a sphere, that's quite tricky. Yes. And although, you know, it'd be lovely for the why to come at a much later point, I'm not going to, at the age of 11 or 12, teach them why. I'm going to leave that, put a, put a pin in it. I might tell them, I'm deliberately not, a, I might tell them that there is a why, but we're not going to go into it. But, but I wouldn't go into it. So I think that's the more interesting question right now for me. And one of the, one of the times when I feel compelled to offer the why, and one of the times when I feel this is so much more complex than you need at this point in time in order to use the thing, that actually I'm prepared to leave it to one side. Got it. Fantastic. Well, last few questions from me, Chris. And the, the first one is, is really concerning probably the two, 
two kind of biggest areas that have, have really ch changed my teaching over the last 18 months. And that's Sweller's Cognitive Load Theory and the, and the work of uh, Robert Bjork, and in particular in this instance on desirable difficulties. And I just wonder, is there a conflict between the two, Chris, in particular in 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 thinking is it is it too simplistic to say that for cognitive load theory thinking should be easy and for desirable difficulties thinking should be hard i spent a while thinking about this um a long time thinking about this as well actually i think i did eventually reconcile the two to my own satisfaction i think one of the things um first of all to bear in mind and this is actually an exceptionally important point um in terms of thinking about research and its applications to teaching. What we mean by the word research is often poorly defined. And, um, and, and this comes up when, again, when we think about the minimally guided instruction thing. Okay, so the, like Richard Mayer says, there should be three strikes rule. Kirsten Swallow-Clark says it doesn't work. Well, there's other research over here that says okay, inquiry yeah. leads to great outcomes. So who's to say you can use research to prove anything, right? Actually, that's not true. So we need to define two different kinds of research here. The first is education research, as I think it's broadly defined. Um, and this is where researchers try to, try to behave like uh, medical researchers. So you ask a very specific question like... Um, do children learn better in sets or mixed ability? Is dirt time effective? Yes or no? Um, things like that. And, <clears throat> and then you find a bunch of schools and a bunch of classrooms and a bunch of teachers who are prepared to work with you as a part of this. Um, and then you, you test it out and you try to have a randomly assigned control group and intervention groups. And then you test it and you look at the outcomes. Now, this is where the problems come in. At the moment, it is possible to derive meaningful, useful ideas from this research, but it's very difficult to do so. A lot of research gets published, which is very low quality. Um, lots of research gets published, which probably shouldn't ever be published. Um, lots of conclusions are drawn, which shouldn't have been drawn from that original research. And this is why you get conflict. You get You get people sort of almost going out looking for what they want to find and then finding it and then publishing that they found it. Or you get into arguments about whether, whether things apply to different contexts and, and that kind of shift. So it is possible to derive, I don't want to say that, sort of fall into the sort of biesta anti, biesta scientism idea um, that you can derive meaningful information from this research, but it's difficult to do. Um, and you probably have to rely a little bit on pretty strong authorities like Nick Rose who are, or Becky Allen, people who are the learning scientists, people who are able to go through this and interrogate it quite deeply. But on the other hand, there's a very different kind of research, which is um, the research that we're getting out of cognitive science. And the reason it's different is because all that education research takes place in real classrooms with real teachers, real pupils, real human beings, with all of the messy, murky, difficult to control variables that come with that. But the cognitive science research tends to take place in a laboratory or you know, laboratory conditions. You get people one at a time or in small groups to come in, try out your test, and then they leave. And it's very controlled by contrast. And as a consequence, what we're seeing is an emerger. While like, people are constantly arguing and fighting tooth, on it, tooth and nail over what education research means, we are seeing a, a, a relative consensus, a convergence on a consensus amongst cognitive scientists about really, really fundamental principles about how we learn. But 
these are fundamental principles. So e even though I, Bjork and Sweller can tell us things about how the human mind works and how we learn stuff, it, it, there, there, there is then required this layer of interpretation as to how we're going to apply that to the classroom. For example, okay, so so uh, I mean, this isn't even Bjork's thing. Uh, retrieval effect about 100 years old has constantly survived a, a falsification attempts. It's, it's very it's very rigorous. Um, so how do we now apply the retrieval effect in classrooms? Do we do it uh, by having daily low-stakes quizzes, uh, weekly low-stakes quizzes? Do we do it through a practice of interleaving? Do we do it via homework? Do we do it by using do nows? How do we do it? How do we implement that principle? And actually, that's still up for debate a little bit. Um, now, what Swell has tried to do with cognitive load theory is do some of that interpretation for us um, and start offering slightly sort of closer to the classroom recommendations, like design your worksheets like this uh, rather than that way to avoid split attention. Um, but there's, there's still a layer of interpretation required. So the reason I say this is because um, Bjork's uh, come up with a brilliant, 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 brilliant theoretical model. And then he's attempted to do some of the interpretive work himself as well for our benefit. He's come up with this language of desirable difficulties. And I'm a little worried that the language of desirable difficulties isn't going to be that useful because in some ways it's... Um, in some ways, the language takes care of itself. I guess my concern is that people are going to start introducing undesirable difficulties. They're just going to hear difficulties. Difficulties are desirable, make things harder. They'll see children struggle, and then they'll use the struggling children as their excuse for... Um, they'll use sort of Bjork's language as the excuse for the struggling children. Yes. Learning's supposed to be difficult. You're supposed to struggle. Don't worry. Everything's going fine. And then when the the results come out, GCC results come out at the end, I'm sure maybe everything wasn't fine, then we get into the language of, well, this child was only ever going to get a D grade anyway, yes, or a C yes. grade anyway. Um, so I'm a little bit worried about that, because I think actually the two, I do think the two theories can be reconciled with one another. And I think, once again, they marry up beautifully with Engelman's work. Um, because if you look in, so one of, the, one of Engelman's, desirable difficulties is he calls it interleaving. I, I tend to use the word interleaving for, for different, um, for something different. But basically it's variation. It's introducing variation. And if you look at Engelman's um, programs as they're published, in a single lesson, he will maybe cover eight different topics within maths. But those same eight topics, and, and each topic's being covered for just a few minutes, and then they move on to the next one. Uh, but those eight, same eight topics, broadly speaking, are being covered day after day after day after day uh, across time. So that variation is being introduced in terms of the topics that are being studied in a lesson. Within the example sequences, again, if we look through the sequence that I, I put on the blog for the, the, adding, uh, the adding equations, I think, I, I think a way of interpreting Bjork's language is if you're doing what we tend to do as naive teachers, um, we tend to pose the exact same question type again and again, and we do it in blocks of maybe 10 or 20. Uh, so in this case, it would be something x plus something x equals something, something x plus something x equals something, add them together. Whereas 
what I did with that sequence was each new question was different. Yes. So from start to finish, you're covering a substantial amount of variation. But I didn't make enormous leaps. I didn't rub everything off and start again every time, which I think would be an undesirable difficulty. It would make it too hard. I changed just one tiny thing. So things were... Um, the desirable difficulty thing ultimately is all about this sort of, it's a new language for trying to describe this idea of getting kids to think about things deeply. This thing that we keep doing badly or coming up with new bad ways of trying to make it happen, like withholding information and withholding knowledge and playing guess what's in my head. It's a new language for trying to do that. Um, and I think that's what those kind of instructional sequences do from one question to the next. You have to think about how to apply that thing that you just learned. But the, the leap in logic and the amount of thinking you have to do is eminently achievable. It doesn't overload working memory, but it is genuine thought. Um, I don't know whether or not that would be classified as germane load in a in Swellers taxonomy. I'm still slightly confused at the moment by what he now means by germane cognitive yes. load. Um, but I think that's the way of reconciling reconciling them. It, it's I don't think it's supposed to be interpreted as make it really hard um and even in uh even in like cognitive load theory decades ago when Swiller was writing about this they talked about the the variation effect which is the same thing again that what bjork's often describing with desirable difficulties um or the idea of leaving some time so that you forget a little bit and then you come back to it that idea of retrieval practice again yeah, that's completely in line with cognitive load theory. Cognitive load theory, I don't think, says you should keep thinking about things again and again and again, constantly, because that's easy to do. It, it's just about managing cognitive load, fundamentally. It's just about managing cognitive load so as to avoid overload. And there are a series of recommendations to ensure that. And I think if you're getting overload, you've introduced an undesirable difficulty, as it were. Got it. Fantastic. And the, the kind of last question from me, um, and this relates, this was something I was thinking about when I was reflecting on our first first interview, Chris, and it's something I've been pondering for a while. And I'm hoping you're the man who can help reconcile this in my head because I, I, I don't know the answer to this myself. And, and that's, should we encourage students to overlearn? And the argument there would be learning and performance are different. So we, we can't observe learning at any given point of time. So do we do we need to perform beyond mastery to ensure kids have definitely learnt it? Or do we need to actually practice less to induce forgetting based on Bjork's new theory of disuse? And the, real, the, the reason that I wanted to ask this uh, of you, Chris, was... Just thinking back to your sequence of lessons on simultaneous equations, there was a lot of revisiting. So by the time the kids were in the third lesson, they were revisiting stuff constantly from lesson one and lesson two. And they almost didn't have time to forget and therefore didn't have time to benefit from what Bjork talks about, the benefits of forgetting and then retrieving. So I wonder if you can reconcile that for me, Chris. Well, I would start by saying they definitely had time to forget. They had a whole day. Yes, they would. They would have forgotten two hours after they walked out the classroom what they just learned. Um, remember how steep the forgetting curve is at its initial peak. It's incredibly steep. So that would be my initial response to that. If anything, I would say that the the failing in this uh, sequence of lessons was that it happened at the end of the year and then we didn't get to pick it up later on. And this is why um, I talk so much about the the lesson being the wrong unit of time. So, okay, great, we did this planning over five lessons rather than one but really the planning should be taking place over five years 
not five lessons. Um, and had we done that, what you would what you would now do is start introducing that increased, slowly increased spacing for these different topics. It's very hard to do right. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how to do it right because obviously the more you learn, the more you need to revisit. Um, but this is where I hope that interleaving, as I mean it, can help us. And in this case, I mean um, you have a question which, uh, in order to answer it, you're drawing on more than one um, topic, more than one piece of mathematical knowledge. And that could be uh, um, something that sort of interleaves quite beautifully, like um, a third question connected with a question that uses Pythagoras' theorem. Yes. Or it could be something that's a bit more ham-fisted, but still quite effective, like... Um, here are, here are a bunch of different shapes. If you select one at random, what's the probability of it having an area greater than 30 centimeters, 30 square centimeters? Right. So you've got to apply the different shape formulae plus some knowledge of probability at the same time. Um, so I think that might be one way of dealing with the constant accumulation of uh, knowledge. And, and in fact, and actually that might be one of the advantages that mathematics has as a hierarchical subject over uh, the humanities as cumulative subjects. The, the, the issue of overlearning and mastery in general, what makes them difficult things to talk about is the same thing that makes all of this difficult to talk about, which is that they are poorly defined terms. Again, like what do we mean by overlearning? And I think it just means, or what it, all it means to me is um, we have a tendency to let children get to a point where, <clears throat> um, okay, in, in this lesson I've got lots of questions right, therefore I can do it. And we then, I think we just like, we treat it like now they've got it and we don't really focus on the keeping it. So we just assume that they've now got it because they could do a whole bunch of questions. Um, or as soon as they've done three questions uh, successfully, we might say, great, they've done three questions. Now they can do it. We can move on yes. compared to asking them to do 10 or 20 questions in a lesson. Um that one in the lesson, should they should they be doing 10 or 20 rather than 3? It, it's an interesting one. I mean, I had an argument with my subject um, subject tutor back in my first year when I was training where uh, I put these 10 questions on the board, which are all very similar. I can't remember what they were about now. Um, and she'd said, maybe you could have started changing them after the first three. And my point was, well, they'll just get it wrong. So... <laughs> And, and I think, actually, I really want them to get this. I, I, go, I think they need the practice to get it right, was my argument. Um, but the more you think about the, the applications of variation and variation theory, the more I think maybe we can, we can sort of carefully be thinking about what is, like, what, what is the important thing we want them to learn here. So the, the expanding brackets example would be, we want them to learn, multiply whatever's outside by everything inside, um, but not necessarily whatever's outside, because if it's if it's just five, or like three x plus five bracket something, yes. we don't want the three x to be multiplied by everything. Um, so, so there's something about thinking about exactly, or, or the simultaneous one equations one. Like, add, we want them to know that to add, you you can add equations, and the way you do it is like this: adding everything on the left. That's um, a like term and adding like terms on the right hand side. Um, and then what you can potentially do is ask, if we're going to go down that sort of 20, 30 questions route, is ask, um, what is the way of structuring and varying those questions so that each time they're being asked to apply that same idea in just a slightly different way, but it's 
eminently achievable. So rather, so what I see in the textbooks, the textbooks tend to have so much variation that each new question is a chore. It, it's either straightforward, as in I'm doing the same thing I just did, but with different numbers. And maybe there's value in doing a couple of those. Um, and then everything after that is, so it's either that or, and you can see how that would get um, very sort of boring and actually frustrating for somebody who's saying, well, I know how to do this. And, it, and, and usually your high attainers who are saying, I know how to do this. I want to learn the next thing, as opposed to people who are, maybe it's not even about attainment, just people who are a bit more insecure, who are happy sitting there doing the thing they know they can do. And so they're, uh, so that they can be successful and feel successful. But yeah, so some people will get bored and want to move on. And perhaps that's legitimate. And perhaps the, the solution to that is, is this variation theory. You, you, in, instead, the next question is just slightly different from the last one in a way that's a little bit interesting, but also not, you're not having to start completely from scratch. And it's like a massive chore and a massive burden to think through how to do this thing. Um, maybe we can get to that point further down the line. But in that initial lesson, Perhaps variation is the key to this. I'm still thinking it through, but that's <laughs> that's kind of um, that's kind of what I'm thinking at the moment. I think certainly we have to we have to keep revisiting things, and that is certainly one interpretation of overlearning. Um, in the moment, possibly variation is a is a means of uh, dealing with this idea of overlearning in terms of let's do 20, 30 questions on the same thing. Um, and yeah, we and then yeah, I think that I think that actually wraps it up. Those two, yeah. Perfect. Well, that actually teases up perfectly, Chris, for a bit of a teaser for what's coming next, because I'm just looking at my list of things that we haven't got around to here. We've sure. Got, <laughs> I mean, we've got schemes of work, we've got uh, examples yes. and variation, we've got questioning, we've got <laughs> my favourite misconceptions, we've got problem solving, revision, improving teaching and teacher training. And then we've got your reflections and your big three. So hopefully we have by about 2019, we'll get around, <laughs> to, get around to those. But Chris, this has been absolutely fascinating. Just, it's just amazing to hear you talk in depth about these these big issues. So thanks once again for, for sharing your time with, our, uh, time with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, likewise, Greg. Thank you again for inviting me back. Uh, also great to speak with you. So there you have it. There was part two of my interview with Chris Bolton. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I'll tell you what, anytime I speak to Chris or I'm lucky enough to attend one of his workshops or presentations, my head always comes away absolutely buzzing and I've just got so much stuff to think about and so many new ideas to try. And I was thinking, well, what should I reflect on in, in this takeaway? And there's two things that really struck me. And the first is I asked Chris, should you ever teach the how before the why? And Chris turned it on his head and essentially said, should you ever teach the why before the how? And, and that got me really, really thinking because it's been a big enough shift for me in my teaching to actually teach kids something without them necessarily knowing all the ins and outs of it first. And, and something like Pythagoras is, is a classic example of this. And um, it's 
It's all well and good trying to explain to students exactly why Pythagoras works, but flipping out, that's, that's pretty complicated stuff. And you can get kids to kind of half discover it by, as Chris talks about measuring sides or the classic thing of attaching squares on the end uh, to the ends of each of the sides and working out their area and seeing if you spot a relationship. But there are two things wrong with that. The first is if anything goes wrong in terms of measuring or any kind of misconceptions with area or anything like that, <laughs> then the relationship doesn't exist exactly exist um, and that's a bit of a problem but secondly the bigger issue is that isn't why Pythagoras works that's just a way of kind of uh, sniffing out a pattern or spotting a relationship that, that's not a formal proof of Pythagoras or anything like that and for years I've been kidding myself on two two accounts really the first is that we always have to show the kids why something works and secondly that these kind of relationships and this, this kind of pattern spotting is why it works and, and neither of those things are true and what, what ends up happening is I find anyways kids get so bogged down into trying to understand the why that by the time you actually come to teach them the how either they're demotivated they're confused they've already talked themselves out of being able to understand it and you, you're essentially fighting a losing battle so for a lot of topics like Pythagoras and like multiplying fractions and the things I discussed with with Chris I am convinced that it makes sense to teach kids how to do it and let the understanding of why develop either alongside or at a later date but now I'm thinking about what Chris said there is there ever a case where you should try and teach the why first? And the only thing I can think of, and I've, I've, I've not thought about this for a great amount of time, but I'm thinking equations, solving equations. Now, sure, you can show kids how to solve equations. And I'm, I'm talking linear equations for the time being. So you can show kids how to solve something simple like 2x plus 1 equals 5. And you could maybe demonstrate it using silent teacher or example problem pairs or something like that. And you could show them, I, I'm, I prefer using the balance method. You could show them doing the same thing to both sides of the equal sign, um, adding one, dividing by two and so on and, and show them. And that's showing them how to do it without them necessarily understanding why it works. However, then when you come to little twists, so then when you come to something like five minus two X equals three, then I think it becomes a little bit difficult because then it's not as if order of operations and bid mass or inverse operations explains things. Then kids actually have to formally understand conceptually that you are balancing both sides of the equation out by carrying out the same operation to both sides. And I think that's that's a case there that if you want to take kids far in equations you want to give them a solid basis for understanding something that's some kind of method that's not going to fall apart whenever they encounter a little bit of a twist some kind of method that's going to help them whenever brackets involve uh, sorry equations involve brackets or equations involve fractions and so on i think this it's important that you build that method on a solid basis of, of conceptual understanding and that before you go anywhere you explain to students okay we have got equations here and to be able to solve equations, we can do the same mathematical operation to both sides of that equation, and it will always maintain equivalence. And I think kids have to have that conceptual understanding before you then show them how you actually then manipulate both sides of an equation and so on to go and solve it. So that, that's my only thought on that one, that something like algebra, and I don't know how far this extends, but that would be something where I would spend a little bit of time on the why before I then actually went through examples and went and started showing kids how to do it. But that's just my take on it anyway. So that's one thing that's got my head buzzing. And then the second thing is more of a question. And I'm going to lay this down as a bit of a challenge um, that I'm, I'm going to hope Chris is going to address 
class when he comes back on the show. And that is that I'm pretty much sold on explicit instruction now um, to introduce topics and to get skills and knowledge um, embedded into, into long-term memory. And my kind of model for introducing a topic will be something along the lines of I would use formative assessment, diagnostic questions to assess baseline knowledge. And I, if you've been to one of my talks over the last couple of years, you'll see I'm absolutely obsessed with what I mean by, by baseline or prerequisite knowledge. So I would assess that first using diagnostic questions. And if some of that knowledge was lacking or deficient in some way, I would um, intervene appropriately and make sure that that's all sorted before I went on to try and teach the new knowledge. And then when it comes to teaching that new knowledge or the new concept, I would use carefully chosen examples, and then I would use either variation theory or intelligent practice to make sure that kids get those skills um, as, as solid and master them and are as fluent or whatever phrase you want to use. And I'll be discussing variation theory and, and this kind of practice with, with Chris in future episodes. But here's my question. How do we then get kids to the next stage? How do we get them to solve complex problems? Because I can see that explicit instruction is excellent. Absolutely excellent. The best model around, I think, for getting kids to master those skills. But then we've all seen kids fall apart when it comes to, those of you in the UK doing the GCSE, when it comes to those unstructured, unpredictable AO2 and AO3 GCSE questions that could be on any flipping topic, any combination of topics, set in any context, any weird looking thing you could, you could ever imagine. And they're becoming more and more unpredictable. So how do we move kids from the next stage, from this model of explicit instruction, to then get them to be good to be able to take on those um, unfamiliar, unstructured problems? Because I know, having spoken to Andrew Blair, that he will be of the opinion, and I don't want to put words into his mouth, that a model of inquiry um, teaching actually sets kids up better to deal with these unfamiliar circumstances because they're used to dealing with weird problems, weird lines of inquiry and so on. So how do we get kids to the next stage? How do we get them to solve problems under a model of explicit instruction? I'll be addressing that with Chris when he returns to the podcast. But in the meantime, I've got loads of absolutely flipping amazing guests lined up in the next in the next few weeks and next few months. I'm so, so, so excited. So all that remains for me to do in the meantime is to thank podcastthemes.com for the wonderful jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. To thank Chris Bolton again for sharing his time and sharing his expertise. It is an absolute treat to listen to Chris every single time. I feel so, so lucky. And to thank you, the loyal listener, for keeping on tuning in. As I say, if you can help spread the word, uh, chuck a review in if possible, get me up those charts, flipping Michaela, where, where have they come from taking over and Tez Podagogy and all this learning scientists, I need to get back up there, so any help you can give me will be greatly appreciated. Anyway, take care of yourselves and I will see you next time. Bye for now. Bye.